Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, welcome to Standing for Truth. I want to thank everybody for being here for today's awesome presentation. The topic for tonight is an analysis of the flood account in Genesis. We've got uh, my co-host, Matt. We've got Sam Jenkins and uh, Indiana Joe Hubbard from the creation research team. Uh, they are truly a blessing. We've got surprises today. Uh, we've got an audience Q&A. It's going to be very interactive and it's going to be a ton of fun. So I want to thank everybody again for being here. Uh, before we hand it to uh, Sam and Joe for some introductions, though, uh, Matt, Matt, thanks for being here as a co-host. How you doing today and what's going on, brother? Uh, doing good. I got to stop staying up watching your stuff so late, though, because uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, yeah, you stay up late. Um, but everything's going good. Uh, it's perfect timing. We got a good audience. So make sure everybody that can hear me right now, make sure to tag just standing for truth because I'm logged in on his. So I'll see the questions and I can set them aside. And uh, make sure to stay till the end because there's a surprise for everybody. And also something that came to my mind was that uh, Kent Hoven, his channel has been blocked for him. So all of the content that he is doing is now on Matt Powell's channel. So if you're looking for Kent, you can find him on, on Powell's channel. We might have to put the uh, uh, link in the description for people that don't know his channel, but I would imagine most will. And uh, for today, uh, make sure to get your questions as far as barominology, geology, and paleontology goes, because that is uh, their specialty. So start, put your thinking caps on. <laughs> All right. I appreciate that uh, introduction, Matt and uh, Sam and Joe. Maybe we'll start with uh, you, Joe. Joe, you're popular around here. You were uh, here a couple of weeks ago. You're going to be mm -hmm. here again in another couple of weeks for a presentation mm -hmm. on the uh, flood boundary, which I'm really, really pumped for. Uh, yeah. How are you doing today and how's everything going on? I'm pretty good. And uh, I'm looking forward to the flood boundary presentation because I'm actually going to be back in the Isle of Wight when I'm doing it. Right. Uh, we like to travel around and do a lot of research with creation research. We're going to the Isle of Wight, which is, in my opinion, one of the best places to go looking for fossils in the UK. Right. Uh, it's the sixth best place in the world for the diversity of dinosaur fossils. So you get a really nice, diverse range of dinosaurs found there. Um, but it's also going to be quite interesting from the flood post flood boundary kind of question because you have rocks there which i believe are definitely laid down in noah's flood and you have rocks there that i definitely believe weren't so it should be interesting to actually use a balance to actually see can we work out which flog uh, which rocks sorry are flood rocks and which rocks are post flood rocks and uh, where could where should the boundary be if if anywhere at all so that should be quite interesting um generally speaking i've been pretty busy over the last few uh, uh, weeks or so we've been up and down all over the country ministry has started up in person again which has been really nice including here in the uk we've had a, a big event happen called cop 26 
the big climate change event, right? And we deal with a lot of stuff about climate change with creation research. It's our most requested topic. We've produced more DVDs and stuff and programs and any other topic uh, is always climate change, right? So we thought, well, we've done lots about the history and the science. Let's go have a look at the politics. So we traveled up to Glasgow. We interviewed a load of the protesters. We're still working on this project. We're getting some great people in to interview and talk about as well. And there should be a, a little trailer, a teaser trailer, go up on Creation Research's YouTube channel uh, in a few days' time. So keep an eye out for that. But that's kind of what we've been doing. With regards to me here tonight, I'm not here to hijack Sam's presentation. I'm here because uh, we well, we went through uh, Sam's presentation a couple of days ago with, uh, with John Mackay, and it looks really, really good. Uh, you're in for a great treat. But I'm here sort of as a the next level up, shall we say, from Sam in terms of expertise about this issue. So I'm here particularly to help with the question-answer session, as well as if at any point during the uh, presentation there's uh, uh, something that I feel I can give or help out or go back and forth with Sam about, then that's why I'm sort of here in the, in the background, but specifically here for the Q&A time. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that, uh, Joe. As, as we always say, you guys at Creation Research are a, a blessing. So thank you again. Thanks for that introduction, uh, Joe. And Sam, the uh, man of the night, uh, we are pumped for this. Uh, you know, I've, I've said it's the much anticipated presentation. We've got a lot of people excited. So uh, yeah, a little bit about yourself. This is uh, technically your first time here officially on the channel, especially giving a presentation. So uh, yeah, maybe a, a, a more of a, a detailed introduction, who you are, maybe a little bit about your, your testimony uh, for us in the audience. Sure. Um <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, uh, hello everyone. Um, I'm Sam. I'm another part of the creation research team um, in the UK. Um, I'll go a bit into my uh, presentation about sort of like my testimony and stuff like that. I've got a few sort of slides on there. Um, but yeah, I, I jumped on sort of semi recently ish within the last year. Um, but it's been going really good. We've got had some really good presentations and uh, creation conversations on there. Um, which has been really, uh, uh, really interesting, a good blessing um, on the channel. Um, and good to see a lot of uh, your viewers come on to our um, our live streams and to interact, which is really always really good to see. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, Sam, yes, if anybody in the chat who's not yet subscribed to um, the Creation Research YouTube channel and also the podcast, Sam, that you've put out. Please uh, go check that out. All the links and everything is in the description box of this video. So uh, that being said, yeah, I guess we'll kind of just get right into it, uh, Sam. Yeah. Um, and yeah, unless there's anything else you wanted to add, of course. Uh, no, ahead. no, no, that's fine. Um, I'll, uh, I'll share my screen. Why sure. not? Because I can. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Now, can you all see that? Is that all good? Because I've got the presentation sort of thing of PowerPoint up on there, so I can't see you guys living it. It looks, oh yeah, it looks great. Full screen. Okay, full screen. Cool. Awesome. Why? Well, hello, I'm Sam. I'm, an, again, another part of the creation research team in the UK. Um, just a little bit of a plug at the beginning. Um, our creation conversations we do every week on Friday. Uh, that's at 9 p.m. UK time um, at around about 6 a.m. 
um, East Australian time. Um, and we're also available as a podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Um, there should be a link in the description. If not, I'm sure Donnie will add it um, for our link tree uh, where you can find all the platforms we're available on. Um, and you can subscribe on there and get listening. Um, it'd be really great to uh, hear your feedback on that. Uh, and the uh, other thing as well is we're actually on Twitter. Um, you can search Creation Research or you can at us at the creation guy. And um, yeah, it'd be great to see you guys on Twitter as well. Uh, and oh yes, one other thing. We do have a little small, tiny, minuscule little project in the works. Uh, yes, the Genesis film project from the producer Fire and Ice. We've got Genesis where you can experience creation from the beginning. Uh, we may or may not, we don't know, well, I, I know and everyone else knows, but you'll just have to wait and see uh, if we have something special for you after the presentation. So make sure you stick around and we'll uh, we'll get started. So a bit about me. So I was born and raised in a uh, small sort of city uh, called York, in the north of England. Uh, it's a place rich, filled with history. Uh, and we've mentioned York a few times on Croatian Conversations. Um, I'm now living in uh, in Birmingham. Um, which is around where sort of like the England uh, section on this map is. Um, so I've moved around a little bit, um, fairly stable here, so that's good. Um, but York is a fantastic place to visit. Uh, here's some lovely photos of York to get your uh, get you chomping at the bit to visit. Uh, beautiful place. Um, you've got the uh, Snickleways, sort of reminiscent of Harry Potter. Um, you've got the uh, city walls, which is oozing with history and uh, as well in the uh, lower left hand corner you've got the uh, Jorvik Viking Centre so if you love Vikings if you love uh, history uh, that's a really great place to visit and and learn a bit about the a, a certain time in uh, in York's lifetime so I was born and raised in York uh, I had a, a Christian upbringing um, and uh, one of my passions that a lot of people may not know about is acting. Uh, I've done a fair bit of acting in my time. Uh, this is me in the York Mystery Plays in 2012. This is from the trailer. You can search it online. It's me being stabbed, um, as I'm sure many atheists may want me. <laughs> but um, uh, but yeah, so um, it was great fun to do. Um, and it was um, one of the first times where the Mystery Plays, if you don't know, is a story from Genesis through to um, the end of, of the Bible. Uh, it's all acted out in sort of old sort of Shakespearean English. Um, and that's me with a bunch of my old college friends. There we go, all, all dressed up in costume there. And that's me looking very moody uh, during another one of our school productions. And uh, another little known fact as well, I've actually been in a feature film. Yes, I've been in a film called The Knife That Killed Me. Uh, only background character though. Uh, and uh, you can see if you can spot me although that's probably given a little bit away uh, there. So my testimony and also how I got involved with creation research. So like I said earlier, I was born and raised in a Christian home uh, and I was a Christian because I thought it was the done thing. Uh, my parents went to church, so I went to church. I talked the talk, but I didn't walk the walk. And um, I went off to um, a Christian university in uh, Malvern, if you don't know where that is, Google it. I unfortunately don't have a map for that. <laughs> um, but I, I went there and um, in my third year, I lost my faith uh, very heavily. Uh, I became a 
vehement atheist. Uh, I would actively bash people online for um, speaking of anything towards faith and uh, the Bible, creation, anything really. And um, it was a very sort of dark time in my life. And I went through a lot of uh, bad stuff. Uh, I won't go into detail, but it wasn't, needless to say, a good place for me. Um, and if we fast forward to last year, around about June time, I was browsing Facebook, and all of a sudden an advert pops up for a group called Alpha. Now, those in the UK will probably know what Alpha is, but those outside of the UK may not. So Alpha is a Christian uh sort of group that meets once a week where you can discuss for about 12 weeks-ish uh, big questions of life, you know, what's the meaning of life, does God exist, what about Jesus, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. And anyone is invited along, atheists, Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, anything, agnostics, everyone is welcome and they, you can all put your opinions in. Um, and this advert popped up and I thought it was extremely strange because obviously the way Facebook works is that the ads that pop up are based off your search history. And that had nothing to do with my search history at all. Um, the, the, I was very perplexed, very confused, um, but I don't really know what sort of led me to sign up, but I ended up signing up then and there. And I don't know how to explain it, but there was a big hunger, a big need to know more. And so that led me on about a two week journey uh, researching everything under the sun, uh, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, Christianity, atheism, agnosticism. I wanted answers and I wanted them very badly. And I was staying up until five o'clock in the morning doing uh, research. Um, but yeah, so that was very intense. And it was looking back now, it was clearly supernatural in nature. Um, and it got to about week two and the, I'd managed to narrow it down to two faiths, Christianity and Islam. And the main crux of the argument was, if Jesus didn't die on the cross and didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity has got nothing to stand on. That's basically the whole leg of everything, is that if Jesus wasn't who he says he was, there's no point in believing it. So then I started researching, 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 reading articles, reading books, watching videos, watching debates, all sorts of things. And then what comes up on week two? The death and resurrection of Jesus. And no matter where I looked, there was just nothing. I couldn't escape the wall of evidence in front of me. And me being scientifically minded, um, I would look at this wall of evidence and I'd have two choices. I'd have to be true to myself and my morals and say, I have got no choice but to accept this. Or I could do the unscientific thing and walk away, turn my back and just ignore it. And I had to give in because that's how my brain is wired. And I gave in. I gave my life back to Christ. And uh, I haven't really been the same since. <laughs> um, but then fast forward to about sort of June of this year, maybe July-ish, I don't know. I don't know when. Um, my dad sent an email to uh, John Mackay. For those who don't know, John Mackay, the creation guy, is our international director over in Australia. Um, if you're watching John, hi, John. Good to see you. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it was, um, uh, my, my dad sent him an email and um, he, John emailed back and said, oh, oh, yes, very good. Thank you for sending that out. Oh, how's that son Sam of yours? People may be thinking, oh, well, how does he know who I am? Well, 
Many years later, well, earlier, that's me and John back in 2012. This is when he was speaking at a, a church uh, in the north of England somewhere. Um, he um, he came and gave a talk and there was a, uh, I, I went to one of his talks and I, uh, as a sort of a, I, I went through a bit of a stage. I didn't really know what to believe when I was much younger. Uh, I went to one of his talks and believed essentially. Um, and then I've come in and out of his life several times. Uh, it's almost as if fate is uh, weaving us back together, as it were. And um, I think I can speak for uh, John when he, he felt the same, uh, that God was bringing us back together for some reason. Um, and Joe knew of me even before he met me because John had sent him this picture or showed him this picture saying, oh, yes, this is Sam uh, from the UK. He's kept that, that picture all these years. Uh, sharing with people um and there's a definite supernatural element here so we couldn't ignore it and so i i joined the creation research team uh i do the uh sort of the more the multimedia side of things uh so i look after the chat all the social media stuff and um oh yes that very small project that we're doing the genesis film um so that's sort of what we're doing uh together at the minute and uh, a few months ago, I went to go see Joe. Look at me. It looks like I've had an accident with a mop, but there you go. Um, that's before I had my hair cut. That's my lockdown hair. I can just feel the memes growing now with that hair. Um, but yeah, so that's me and Joe. I went over to see the uh, Creation Museum, how that's getting on. I actually managed to hold real dinosaur bones. I mean, come on, every little boy's dream. Um, but that was amazing. And if you can, if, if COVID laws allow you to, or, you know, whatever, uh, do make sure you get in contact with Joe, try and get a visit into the uh, Creation Research Museum. Uh, it'd be great to have you. Um, we've got some really great plans for the museum. It's gonna be really, really good. So at Creation Research, we love show and tell. Uh, so can anyone tell me what this is? I wonder if anyone knows. Well, this is a Spinosaurus tooth. This is being excavated from Morocco, uh, and uh, secular scientists will tell you it's several million years old. We'll come on to that a little bit later. Uh, this is a bit more of a confusing one. Uh, this looks a bit sort of like a, a blob of rock you picked up from the beach, but actually this is an infilled horsetail rush. Um, and this is actually a what's called a polystrate tree. So... This has been found vertically. It's, we know it's been found vertically because it hasn't been squashed in the uh, in the middle of the rock layers. Uh, so it's nicely all rounded and you've got a nice texture on the outside to let you sort of give you a little bit of a key as to what this actually is. Uh, here we've got a little bit of a trilobite embedded in a bit of rock. Um, you can probably find trilobites everywhere you go. They're quite common. Um, but I've got one or two trilobites in my collection. They're very pretty. If you get a nice whole one, they're very good uh, to look at. Um, now, this one is a, a pressed fish. It's been squished. Uh, we have a beautiful uh, specimen at the um, Creation, uh, Creation Museum uh, in the UK. Um, I have got a fish eating, well, eating another fish, but um, it's not actually eating it. It's actually regurgitating it. But... Joe will probably describe a little bit more of that probably at some point. Um, now this one, ah, yes, this is a bit of an issue. I've put it the wrong way around. 
Let me flip it over. Let's see if we can see what this is. Wow, look at that. That's an absolutely beautiful ammonite. This is from the Yorkshire Jurassic Coast. This is from my neck of the woods. Uh, we have a fantastic uh, beach, uh, well, stretch of beach uh, in Yorkshire called the Jurassic Coast. Uh, you can find some beautiful specimens there, including one of these. This is very interesting. This is a ichthyosaur vertebrae, or possibly a plesiosaur, but most likely it's ichthyosaur. Uh, you can see the uh, the residue from the barnacles on the back there, on the uh, bottom left picture. Uh, we know it's been washed in from the sea because of that. Um, but little fun fact for you. Did you know these used to be called dragon bones? I know. Very interesting. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you go to the Natural History Museum in London and you look at uh, the old ichthyosaur bones, they're actually the still have the old labels on, and it says sea dragon bones or sea dragon, because um, that's what they used to be called back in the day, back before we even had the classification system of ichthyosaur, plesiosaur, tyrannosaur, whatever. Um, these used to be called sea dragons if because they were found on the beach. So that's a little bit of a fun sort of beginner for you. So let's get into the beginning of the presentation. This is an analysis of the flood account in Genesis. So let's move on to the next slide, shall we? So at Creation Research, we always start with scripture. So this is the flood account in Genesis. This is what we're going to be reading together. We've got a nice bit of flood water and a plesiosaur there. Uh, so let's have a read of the in beginning of the flood account. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favour with the Lord. And then we've got the family of Noah. Uh, we've got Sham, Shem, Ham and Japheth. And it carries on after that saying, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how you are to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Very interesting, very specific measurements. You are to make a roof, finishing the sides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. Again, very specific. You are to put a door in the side of the ark, make it with lower, middle and upper decks. Understand that I'm bringing a flood floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife and your son's wives. You are also to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten, gather it as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded them, commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. You are to take with you seven pairs, a male and its female of all the clean animals 
and two of the animals that are not clean, a male and its female, and seven pairs, male and female, of the birds of the sky, in order to keep offspring alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will make it rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing I have made I will wipe off the face of the earth. And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood came and water covered the earth. So Noah and his sons, his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark because of the floodwaters. From the animals that are clean and from the animals that are not clean, and from the birds and every creature that crawls on the ground, two of each, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, just as God had commanded him. Seven days later, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open, the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that same day, Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, entered the ark along with Noah's wife and his three sons' wives. They entered it with all the wildlife according to their kinds, all livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, every flying creature, all the birds and every winged creature according to their kinds. Two of every creature that has the breath of life in it came to Noah and entered the ark. Those that entered, male and female of every creature, entered just as God had commanded him. Then the Lord shut him in. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged even higher on the earth, and all the high mountains... Oh, I don't know what's happened there. Oh, no. I've had a bug. There we go. Um, the mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. Every creature perished, those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind. Everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock, to creatures that crawl, to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left, and those that were in the ark, and the water surged on the earth 150 days. So that's the beginning of the flood account. Well, it is the flood account, let's be honest. But the most important thing that we need to do in this presentation is we need to look at the earth now, looking back into the past and see what's happened. You know, wh what has happened in the past? Why do we come to different conclusions? And what do the rocks really say? So before we start, we need to define what is science. So from the Oxford English Dictionary, science or silence is a noun. The intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behaviour of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. In other words, the main aspect to remember is that science is repeatable, observable and testable. So, question. If the flood were true, what evidence would we see today in the historical, geological and paleontological record? So let's have a look at a bit of history here. So this is historical accounts of the flood. We've uh, got some sources along the, um, the presentation. 
um, of which I can make available if people request them so people can look this stuff up for themselves. So let's do a little hop around the world and see what we find. So Hawaii. Nu'u built a large boat to save his family from a flood. When the boat landed safely on Mauakena, Nu'u offered pig and coconuts to thank the moon. So the creator descended on a rainbow to reveal that he was the one who saved mankind. Peru. The creator, for a choker, sent a flood to destroy the unruly giants he had made. Only two giants survived in the boat, which landed at Tihuaco. The creator made animals to fill the earth, and he made people from clay. Tanzania. God told two men to take seeds and animals onto a boat so they could survive a mountain-covering flood. These men sent out a dove and then a hawk to see if the earth had dried up. Western Australia. Gajara and his family survived a worldwide flood on a raft. He then sent birds to see if the waters had receded. Pleased by the smell of cooking kangaroo, the god Ngaja placed a rainbow in the sky to stop the rain clouds. China. When a sky god flooded the earth, a brother and sister survived on a boat. They had a deformed child, which the brother cut into pieces. Ugh. The earth was repopulated from the pieces. Mesopotamian. The god Ia warned Untampishi of an imminent flood and instructed him to build a boat to preserve life. The chief god Enlil then brought a flood upon the world, which lasted six days and seven nights, following which the ark landed on Mount Nimush in modern-day Iraq, Kurdistan. After another seven days, Untapishi released a dove, which returned, then a swallow, which also returned, and finally a raven, which did not return. The flood clearly now over, Untapishi offered a sacrifice on the mountain, and the gods gathered round like flies to savour the smell of the sacrifice. Finally, Untapishi was made immortal. So these all generally don't sound a lot alike, but there are some key elements here to look at. We've got pretty much every account has a boat of some form or a floating device and in many of the accounts it lists a rainbow and in uh, the uh, the account in Tanzania it has a, a mountain covering flood hmm interesting if you look at a, a police statement if someone were to take a police statement today who you've got four witnesses and you were to interview them each separately if the details don't match, but the core story remains, you know it's reliable testimony because people see things differently. People will notice different details. They might see a colour differently because someone might be colourblind. But if every single person has the exact same eyewitness account, you know something's wrong. It's been doctored, it's been altered, they've corroborated. Now what we can see here is possibly we've got a core story and the details have changed as people have developed their own uh, cultures and traditions. Um, things have changed over time. And so we've got multiple different accounts, but they're very similar in terms of the core. We're looking at the root here. So we'll move on from here and we'll move on to geological and historical evidence. So this is from The Guardian. Evidence found of Noah's Ark flood victims. What? A secular newspaper has reported that Noah's Ark happened? Let's read a bit further and see what they're actually saying. So marine archaeologists found the first evidence of people who perished in a great flood of the Black Sea that has been linked with the story of Noah's Ark. Ah, we've got an issue. 
this is being protruded as a local flood. Interesting. So the general gist here is that they've used remote cameras and submarines to analyze a section in the Black Sea. And if we look down here at the bottom, it says uh, they've found objects which look like beams and branches, debris that might have been stifling for Wattle and Dowd homes. And also they found um, uh, different, um, oh, where has it gone? Uh, they found different um, like mollusks and seashells and things like that uh, from both fresh and seawater. So these have obviously mixed together. However, this is a local flood, but we're sort of on the along the right tracks, but we need to scale this up quite a bit. We need to look at the whole world. So let's move on from here and see where this takes us. So what can, can we conclude from this? It's an interesting premise that a flood happened in that area. Is this Noah's flood? Unlikely. Is this something to look for? Yes. There's some key elements there that we can look for. For instance, the mixing of both fresh and seawater animals, as well as leftover bits and bobs, we can possibly look at. But that's the main thing here is that we can look at this account here and say it's interesting but we're not quite there yet so let's move forward a little bit in this presentation so what is a fossil and how does it form this is taken from the natural history museum website which is a secular website which purports evolution of millions of years so we're not getting a Christian viewpoint on this. However, it's very interesting because this is taken from a kids section. So it's easier to understand as opposed to reading a science journal. So what is a fossil? A fossil is a physical evidence of a prehistoric plant or animal. There may be uh, preserved remains or other traces, such as marks they made in the ground whilst they're alive. Other fossilized signs of a plant or animal are called trace fossils. Dinosaur trace fossils include footprints, imprints of their skin or feathers, and poo called corpolites. And here we have some examples of what we've just looked at. <clears throat> so on the left-hand side, we have a fossil of an ancient creature. It's been preserved in rock. We've got the bones left over. That is a proper fossil. That's like what we all want to dig up at the beach one day. Now on the right hand side, we have, they are still fossilized, but they're not a fossil creature. So if you have a look at the, uh, the back picture, those are some footprints, very delicate, but still preserved very beautifully. Uh, on the left hand side, we have poo. This is a uh, <laughs> corpolite. Um, and also in the uh, bottom right hand corner, we have a picture of Archaeopteryx. And we can see here that there are feathers protruding from here. Something very interesting though, which I'm sure Joe will probably want to expand on a little bit. Um, Archaeopteryx is not a dinosaur, as many people in schools may wish to have you believe. It's, it's not a dinosaur. It was reclassified recently as a bird. And the, this is this again has not come from creation science. This has come from the actual curate, one of the curators at the Natural History Museum, who is in charge of Archaeopteryx. Um, Joe, do you want to expand a little bit on that? 
Sure, let me just turn my microphone on. There we go. Sorry. Um, yeah, so Archaeopteryx has got a rather long history. Uh, to give it in a nutshell, it was actually Thomas Huxley, uh, who was known as Darwin's bulldog, who first uh, pushed forward the whole idea of um, uh, Archaeopteryx perhaps being this sort of uh, intermediate link between dinosaurs and birds. Um, and so this is like way back in the 1800s, right, when everything was sort of first starting out when it comes to this. Um, since then, uh, a lot of more research has been done, in particular by the Natural History Museum, has been uh, led forward by one of their main people. What they've been able to do is actually take a scan of its brain uh, or it's it, it's where its brain would have been right it's it's cranial space the empty space there and this is quite important because there is a major difference between bird brains and reptile brains i mean if you're a bird you've got to cope with so many different things from reptiles including things like flight and so on and so forth right uh, it's a completely different wiring up system their hearing is wired up differently their brain is wired up differently because they essentially have a flying gyroscope right to keep them level when flight which uh, we now have in drones and planes and everything else for helicopters. A reptile doesn't need that. So uh, what they've actually done is pull out the brain space, and it is 100% a bird. Um, there's just no doubt about it. It's not a reptile in the slightest. It's an unusual bird, we'll give you that, because it has teeth and claws. But that's not really that unusual, because we have a good number of birds today that have teeth and claws. In fact, every bird starts off with at least one tooth, right, which it uses to break out of its egg. Um, and there are multiple birds today which have very large, vicious claws on their wings. So it's, it's an unusual bird. Bird, but uh, one thing that's for sure, and this is even from a secular perspective, it is just 100% a bird. So there's a, a thought on that. There we go. Thank you, Joe. Right, we'll move on to the next slide here. So does everything fossilise? Do all living things turn into a fossil once they die? No, very few things do. A specific set of circumstances and conditions are needed for fossilisation to occur. So it's actually a very rare event. Most things that die rot away completely, leaving nothing behind. This is very interesting here. Nearly all fossils we find, around 99%, are from marine animals, such as shellfish and sharks. This is because they lived in the sea, where sand or mud could bury their remains quickly after they died. But dinosaurs lived on land, so how did they get buried quickly enough for some of them to fossilise? Well, Dr David Button... A dinosaur researcher at the Museum of Natural History in London says most of the dinosaur fossils we find are from animals that were living near to a lake or river. Some died shortly before the area flooded and covered their remains in mud and silt. Others were washed into a river by heavy rain. Ah, did you catch that? Very interesting here. A specific set of circumstances is needed for fossils to occur. The fossils have to be buried and quickly in water where mud and sediment can wash over them at a very, very large rate or large volume, enough to cover them so rotting can't take place and to preserve the actual specimen. Interesting. So how do fossils form? The most common way to an animal such as a dinosaur fossilizes is called petrification. And these are the steps. The animal dies, soft parts of the animal's body, including skin and muscles, start to rot away. Scavengers may come and eat some of the remains. Before the body disappears completely, it is buried by sediment, usually mud, sand or silt. Often at this point, only the bones and teeth remain. Many more layers of sediment build up on top. 
This puts a lot of weight and pressure onto the layers below, squashing them, eventually turning them, turning they turn into sedimentary rock. Whilst this is happening, water seeps into the bones and teeth, turning them to stone as it leaves behind minerals. Ah, have you caught it there? It's buried by sediment, mud, sand, or silt. Interesting. We're looking at the flood account here, and we found something very strange. All fossils have to be formed by burying in sediment. Interesting. Now, secular science will tell you that the creature lived and died where you find them in the rock. But why do we find sea creatures buried on land with animals? Interesting. More on that later. Can I just interrupt you very quickly there, Sam? Yeah, of course. A, a, a little point, because it's something which it took me quite a while to um, pick up on as well. When you go to um, you know museums, especially sort of layman museums, because that's that's at the end of the day, that's what most museums are are designed for, right? Uh, the original concept of a museum was that everything was put on display so that researchers could go there and see stuff and compare their finds to it and make notes and so on and so forth. Today, the majority of uh, museums are educational places for the public. Right, so it's put up signs and information and stuff, and only a very tiny select amount of fossils are put on display. Right, to give you an example, the Natural History Museum in London has millions upon millions of fossils in its archives, right? But a relatively small number of them actually make it on display, and most of the big ones that are on display are replicas, right? That's fakes to you and me, right? Just replicas of things that have been uh, put up, right? Now, when we're dealing with the description of fossils in museums, you get a varied response, but the standard one which reaches museums and the standard one which reaches your textbooks and your kids' books about dinosaurs and stuff, right, is that these bones have turned to rock. Now, that's what we refer to as petrified. Now, petrified literally means turned to stone, right? Now, you certainly do get petrified fossils. I've got plenty of them all over the place, including this little one right here, right? This is from the UK. It's from Charmouth. It's a lovely little bit of petrified wood, right? Um, the wood has literally turned to stone. It's gone through a chemical process that has altered it and has turned it completely mineralized. And now you have something that has been completely turned to stone. But when you're Dinosaur fossils, in fact, most, if not all dinosaur fossils, and most fossils in general, they're not actually petrified in the sense of turned to stone. They are permineralized. Now, you can break the name down, permineralized. These are bones that have become permeated with minerals. In other words, minerals from the sediment which they're buried in has been seeped in, and you're absolutely right, it has to be buried with sediment, and the majority of it is buried by water, although there are some other ways you can bury rocks, right, by wind or moving and stuff, but the majority of them is abundant, the evidence is clear, right, it's been with water. But when you have permineralization, you have minerals that permeate the porous spaces of the bone. Now, bone has lots of porous spaces. It's got the honeycomb structure inside, right? And so when you permeate this, you're not actually permeating the bone itself. You're just infilling all of the gaps. So when you end up with a permineralized or a fossil bone, you're actually still touching the bone, the actual bone that was inside the animal. Right? When you touched the bone when you came and visited our museum, Sam, you were touching actual dinosaur bone, the very bone that was also in that dinosaur. What's happened, it is, has become preserved in the fossil record by being infilled and entrapped 
with minerals. So you don't actually turn the bone to stone, you just encase it and entrap it. And there's hundreds of different forms of uh, fossilization, and we could talk through all of them, right, where we don't have time. But permineralization is the most common one, and it actually preserves the bone itself. The very bone that was in the dinosaur bone is still there in the rock. It's just become encased and entrapped. This is why you can split rocks and bones open, right? And inside some bones that you split open, you actually have got soft tissue inside of them, soft squidgy stuff. Um, that's because it hasn't fully turned to stone. In fact, it hasn't even fully been permineralized. You're still entrapping something in the middle. So that's something that took me a long while to realize. And it's something that, you know, people still get surprised at when we're talking because the museums would simply imply otherwise but it's a well-known fact in paleontology and the study of fossils right that the majority of these bones have been permineralized not petrified and not actually turned to stone so there's a little important point to add on to that thank you joe as always full of knowledge far more than i could ever co possibly comprehend so <clears throat> let's have a look at how modern secular science sees the age of the earth this is the uh, the traditional view of the, uh, the the rock layers that are, are all across the planet uh, we have um, rocks the base layer Archean so about 2.5 billion ish I mean they state I mean the age of the earth is again widely contested it changes all the time one minute it's 4.6 one minute it's 4.8 one minute it's 4.2 who knows it's fluid and then we move forward and we see the Paleozoic era. So this is around about 542 to 299-ish million years ago. Um, and then we're moving forward to the Mesozoic uh, and then the Cenozoic. And then we get to modern day man um, pointing at the living pterosaur, strangely enough, on this secular drawing. Um, so creatures die and are buried over time. More and more time passes and more sediments and rocks cover the specimen. Millions of years pass and compress the specimen, which begins the process of fossilization or permineralization. We find the fossil when we go digging for bones and samples. And as I stated earlier, the animal died where it is in the rock. Let's move forward a little bit here and see what we can gather. What do we actually find buried in the rocks? Interesting question. Let's see. Can anyone tell me what these are? These look very weird. These are actually polystrate trees. So a polystrate fossil is a fossil of a singular organism, such as a tree trunk, that extends through one or more geological stratum. The term is typically applied to fossil forests of upright forest tree trunks and stumps that have been found worldwide. Multiple places in the United States, Canada, England, France, Germany, Australia, and typically are associated with coal bearing strata. These have to be buried quickly in order to fossilize. It's important to stress that if these layers formed millions of years, over millions of years, you'd only find a small slither of rock of wood in the rock you wouldn't find this massive great tree trunk protruding through two three even four layers which go through multiple millions of years here we have some fossilized trees at the top here and at the bottom here we have a coal seam so coal 
can be produced in the the lab within a few hours, few minutes. It varies, but typically coal is compressed. Coal occurs when it's compressed and heat is applied, and we get coal. But this coal seam has come from a tree, and it goes through multiple different layers of rock here. Interesting. Let's move forward, see what else we can find out. If my presentation will cooperate, uh, what evidence would we see for Noah's flood in the fossil record? Well, let's have a look. Here we have some petrified fossils and drowning dinosaurs. I forgot to get rid of the petrified on John's notes. Apologies, John. <laughs> um, so here we go. We've got some pictures here. I'll get them all up for you so you can have a little gander. There we go. Lovely, beautiful specimens here. There's something very interesting about these. Let's go in a bit more detail. So the first picture is a plant, specifically a redwood branch. Much of the original plant is still there, but by the by looking at the, the rock and what's surrounding it, it's been picked up and dumped elsewhere. So this has happened in a, a, a flow of water. The next picture along, we've got a fish within a fish. Interesting. The fish hasn't even been digested. How's that possible over a long period of time of burial? And then if we move down to the bottom uh, left, we have a fish and a, oh, that's strange, a land plant. That shouldn't be there. Interesting. And then on the far right-hand side, we have a jellyfish. A jellyfish in rock, you say? How is that possible? They don't have any fossilizable material. Very true, but we find the indentations of them. That can only occur if it's been buried very quickly under extremely huge amounts of pressure. And of course, we've got our good old dinosaurs there. It's not a creation research presentation without dinosaurs. But there's something interesting happening here. You see the way their tails and their necks are arched back. Hmm. The reason for this is it's a central nervous response. So the central nervous system in an animal, when the animal drowns, if it has a tail and its neck will arch up in a central nervous response. And if it's buried extremely quickly, this is preserved. Interesting. All of these have to be buried extremely quickly in order to fossilize. And what's interesting about the bottom left-hand picture is we've got sea creatures being buried with land plants. Interesting. Let's move on a little bit. What's the biggest thing that you can think of that would prove that life and uh, that the earth and the life on it is young? So I've got a little video here for you. Now there's no sound because I don't want echo from everyone else. Um, so let's give this a play, shall we? So this is from, um, is, uh, is Genesis history. And you can see here, so this is from a triceratops horn. And you can see in here that there is actual pliable material. This is elastic. This is tissue. But this fossil is millions of years old. How is that possible? Ah, we've got an issue here. You see, this tissue should have rotted away or have been fossilized. 
Interesting. You see, with this Triceratops horn, they didn't even do the decalcification process in order to get at the living tissue. Living tissue. Well, they say living tissue, organic tissue. They didn't even do that process. They just cut it open. It was literally just there bare. Interesting. And you can see here how it stretches. It's elastic. Interesting. This should not be in a dinosaur bone. This is millions of years old. And that's a close-up microscope, microscope view of the actual tissue itself. We have what's called osteocytes. Uh, Joe, could you possibly illuminate the audience as to what an osteocyte is? Okay, an osteocyte is uh, part of your bone cells, right, um, which helps you to, to, to develop. And it's, it's one of the stereotypical softer parts of your bones, right? Your bones are full of soft, squidgy stuff, including proteins and ligaments and stem cells and stuff that help you produce it, right? Now, one of the interesting things with these organic tissues... Uh, that you, you find in here, right, is that when we first started finding them, the first discovered by Mary Schweitzer in 1993, right, and it was almost purely red blood cells. And the argument was, I mean, as paleontologists, we deal with dead things, right? We're not brilliant with the living, right? So uh, when they first started red blood cells, the initial, well, the initial, initial reaction was, this is impossible. But when they proved that it actually was real, they said, well, it must be amazing because red blood cells must just be able to last 65 million years and then when the organic chemist started to get involved right it was well this isn't quite as easy uh, easily explainable or dismissible as that right and so the argument was well if you have these very high iron rich deposits lots of iron in them and red blood cells are full of iron maybe it's the iron that can actually preserve this but we've gone on so much further than that now right we now have osteocytes and we have uh, protein ligaments and we have all sorts of interesting things right uh, and collagen ligaments which are which are coiled up right and uh, one of the biggest problems particularly with collagen is that the half-life is around 400 years uh, that's reference from a number of papers that have been published on collagen right in other words you start off with x amount of collagen and in 400 years you only are left with half of it another 400 years you've only got half of that another 400 years you've only got half of that and so on and so forth right so so the oldest these could possibly be, uh, these bones full of this soft, squidgy stuff, particularly things like collagen, right, and collagen peptides, is a few thousand years old. And that's the real key um, to what we're getting at here. Fantastic. We actually have some of the um, pictures from um, the T-Rex vertebrae that they uh, see there. You've got the elasticity of the tendons. You've even got the red blood cells and the veins there. Uh, fascinating stuff, but this is a huge, huge problem for secular science at the minute. Um, and you'll find that atheists will come at you and say, oh, well, it's the iron. Well, no, it's not. It's This has to happen recently. You wouldn't, you dig up old grandma in the, well, you wouldn't because you get arrested, but if you <laughs> dug up grandma... Um, you still find some form of osteocytes and some form of tissue on there. Um, however, if you the further and further back you go, the less and less you have, which is, is very interesting because when you look back at, say, Viking remains, you see that there's just bone left. And then you go even further back 
and you see that there's less and less organic tissue because it's degrading quickly. It degrades at a very fast rate. So we've got some problems here. We've got problems with radiocarbon dating. We've got inaccuracies in radiocarbon dating. So radiocarbon dating is a key tool archaeologists use to determine the age of plants and objects made with organic material. But new research shows that commonly accepted radiocarbon data standards can miss the mark, calling in question historical timelines. And there's such a thing as, you know, you've got carbon-14, you've got... Um, You've got a radioactive dating, or no, radiometric dating rather, um, all kinds of different dating methods, but they're all running on the same presupposition that the Earth is extremely old. Because as you can see here, we've got shells from living snails that were carbon dated as tw being 27,000 years old. Interesting. Living snails. Uh, Joe, do you want to expand a little bit on that for our more scientifically inclined audience? Sure, yeah. Um, this this particular, I will just say, this particular snail shell, although it's been uh, it's been published in Science, it was a number of years back, and there's been a lot more recent and newer th examples that you could use as to some of the problems with radiocarbon dating. Right? Um, to put it into a into a biblical spec perspective, because we always like to do that on this channel and whatever we're doing with creation research. Right? It's important to remember that those who are watching here today who believe in the Bible, when God says everything was very good uh what does that word very good mean because you and i view that as a moral thing today and in reality it's so much more than that good men if you read in genesis chapter one animals were 100 vegetarian uh good men that there was no death or disease or now one of the ways that carbon 14 works is that you have the decay happening in the upper atmosphere the decay transfers to the rain the rain falls down and the rain is radioactive right the rain hits the ground and the ground's radioactive the plants suck up the ground and the plants are radioactive you eat the plants and you're radioactive and when you die that radioactive material leaches out and the argument is that it leaches out at a set rate so you can measure how much radioactive material is in you slash the dead bones that you've become and so you can work out how old it is right now it is certainly true that carbon dating is accurate up to a certain point and it's very useful for determining you know whether a grave is a viking or whether a grave is a roman or whether a grave is a bit older or whatever right the reality is most of the time you don't have to go near that because there are enough artifacts buried with the bones so that you you know you don't actually need that but once you start getting into the deep time that's where things tend to get a little bit more inaccurate and where you're relying quite heavily on assumptions which you simply don't know but give you back to get you back to that biblical perspective right uh, radioactive material is bad if you walk into a laboratory they'll tell you put your mask on Right, if you go into a radioactive laboratory, the reason if the radioactive material falls on your skin, it won't do anything. Your skin's dead. Right. But if you breathe it in, it will produce cancer. It can go towards producing cancer. It can begin to destroy your living skin inside your lungs. Right. So you wear a mask and you're fine. But the reality is this radioactive material is all over the planet, in the atmosphere, in the ground, in the plants that you eat. And that's why you're turning radioactive and it can cause cancers and all sorts of nasty things. Right. Here's a question in the beginning when everything was very good how much radioactive material was adam breathing in the answer is none 
right? Because everything was very good and radioactive material is bad. It harms you. It causes cancer, right? So something had to have happened in Earth's history to begin the producement or the producing rather um, of radioactive decay to actually flip that switch to start turning things radioactive so that you can ingest radioactive and so on and so forth. Now, I, from a biblical point of view, would say that a global flood would do that quite nicely. Major climate change and major changes to Earth's atmosphere. Now, that may explain why you are struggling to find carbon-14 uh, in some of the fossils and stuff that you dig up. But there are certainly a whole number of assumptions that have to go behind carbon-14. And the fact is, it's been proved over and over again to be uh, unreliable uh, when you're dealing with the, the very, very deep time, the much older stuff that you're supposed to be dating with it. But flip that on reverse right and this is the final point before i give it back to sam right um carbon dating actually supports a young earth because the oldest you can go up to is a few thousand years right with carbon 14 before you're supposedly completely run out of any carbon 14 in the slightest right well if you get things like diamonds and you get things like dinosaur bones which are supposed to be on the order of hundreds of millions or tens of millions to hundreds of millions to even a few billion years old in the case of diamonds right all of them have been found with vast amounts of carbon 14 in them and you can find the reports in fact i was working uh, we've got quite an interesting um project going on that i'm doing and i can't really say anything about it but it's to do with dinosaurs and in one of the big papers that we were reading these are secular journals which have expressed concern because dinosaur bones have been found with carbon 14 in them well that means the oldest they could possibly be is a few thousand years old of course that's older than what i believe the earth is but it shows that there's a major flaw in the way that these things are actually being dated because there's no way there should be any carbon 14 in anything that is 65 plus million years old in the case of dinosaurs or 1.5 billion years old in the case of diamonds so there's lots of big problems and, and, and major issues with the standard assumption surrounding um, carbon-14 and radioactive dating. And I'll tell you what the problem is. All of them are based off the same assumption that Charles Lyell made when he set out to actually destroy God's word and remove uh, the Bible from people's thinking. And that is all of them are based around the philosophy, the present is the key to the past, which is the complete opposite of what scripture teaches. Exactly. Thank you, Joe. Right. Living fossils. Oh, dear. We have a little bit of an issue here. We have living fossils. See, these are creatures that are still alive today, but are preserved in fossils pretty much exactly the way they were. They haven't changed over millions of years. Why is that? Why is that possible? So on the left here, we've got a horseshoe crab, and on the right-hand side, we've got a coelacanth or coleocanth, whatever you want to call it. Um, if you look at the uh, fossil specimens on either side, they look remarkably preserved. And interestingly, there's no changes. You've still got here, you've got the spines here and the big long spine here, you've got the spines here, the big long spine there. You've even got the imprintation here, spines here, big long spine there. It's got the same structure. And the seal accounts, we've still got all the fins, everything like that here, exactly the same. But over millions of years, this hasn't changed. Why is that? Maybe because it didn't evolve, dare I say? Interesting. Let's go a bit further. What can we deduce from living fossils? Well, we can deduce that 
they haven't changed. <laughs> They're still the same they were in the past as they are today, which would indicate that, well, not really a lot of time's passed. If you're a proponent of evolution, you'd say, oh, well, they didn't need to evolve. I'm sorry, the creature doesn't decide to evolve. It's a mutation. It's a genetic change that results in going from one species to another. I mean, sure, there are slight variations, but it's still a horseshoe crab and a coelacanth in the, in the fossil record. Interesting. What about the missing links of human evolution? Okay. Well, let's have a look. Human evolution evidence consists of either ape, human, and a mix of the two. So let's move this forward a little bit here. So human evolution evidence. Evidence for human evolution has been radically simplified by genetics, which has conclusively found that the fossils or unfossilized bones coming from one of, are coming from one of three categories. Those fully ape, those fully human, or those comp uh, comprised of a mix of ape and human. In other words, they have either been found as 100% ape, 100% human, or essentially a gluing of the two together. There's no middle ground. There's no, oh, these genetics are 50% ape and 50% man. Interesting. You see, when you look at the museums, they say, oh, yes, you look at Lucy and look at um, all these wonderful uh, missing links of human evolution. We have the full family tree going from ape to man. This is how we evolved over millions of years. And one thing they first first start with is Lucy. But Lucy, there's some problems with Lucy. For one, the hip structure that was found was found as being ape-like. Interesting. It was a knuckle walker. It was not had no purpose of being an upright human-like walking. And in the lab, the scientists didn't like that. So what did they do? They cut the hip bone to make it look more human. If that's not a fabrication of evidence, I don't know what is. If you were to go to a court of law with that, it'd be thrown out. Interesting. The um the uh, finds of uh, Lucy as well indicate that um, she died from falling out of a tree. Surely she couldn't have died from just falling over. She fell out of a tree, so from a great height. That's what killed her. So why was she in a tree? Okay, well, numerous amounts of possibilities, but it's not looking good for Lucy. Uh, Joe, I know you've you've uh, done some research into this as well. Um, what have you managed to find? With regards to Lucy or missing links in the evolution in well, general? Well, we'll start with Lucy and go a bit further. Okay, we'll start with Lucy. Um, first of all, the most recent thinking, um, I'll tell you something funny, the most recent thinking shows that Lucy was actually male, the original famous Australopithecus <laughs> afrohensis. If you want to know why she's called Lucy, it's because the guy, people who found her had been up the night before listening to the Beatles, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, right? Um, and, and so they named the fossil they found the next day after it. Um, let's give you some context of where it was found. 
close. So I would call them post-flood fossils. We're not dealing with actual fossils here uh, from Noah's flood, if you want my perspective of it. But you've pretty much hit the nail on the head with most things. Um, there was a lot of fabrication going on around her, the original one's um, design. But one thing we know for sure from the others that have been found is that the two or three rather main characteristics that distinguish apes from humans in terms of bone structure shows that she was 100% a large ape and got nothing to do with human. Now, we found more Australopithecus afrohensis since then, right, uh, including things like fingers, including things like jaws and pelvis. Now, I've already mentioned the sneaky goings on with the pelvis, but one thing that all of them have shown, including the one, the famous one that was um, uh, mysteriously altered, is that they were quadrupeds they walked on all fours they were not designed for standing upright and even though you perhaps could stand upright just like modern apes and chimps and uh, orangutans can stand upright they're not designed to be like that for very long they predominantly walk on all fours the next major um thing that shows between humans and apes is the jaw humans stereotypically have a very u-shaped jaw apes have a v-shaped jaw there's no doubt about it lucy was an ape from her jaw and the final one is those fingers now you've already mentioned lucy falling from the uh, trees right that's one idea of how she ended up dying but now we have enough of her fingers to tell that she was a knuckle walker now you and i have something quite special we can do that and apes can't Right. That's why we can actually hold a paintbrush and do beautiful designs and apes can't because they can't do this. Right. We have much more uh, dexterity with our fingers. But one thing's for sure, you can actually tell the difference between somebody who's designed to do stuff with his hands and something that's designed to walk on the knuckles due to the curvature of the bones. Now, if you have very curved bones, it's because you're a knuckle walker and you're used to swinging from the trees. Lucy, 100%, was a knuckle walker tree swinger from her finger bones. So, uh, yeah. The evidence all points to the fact that she's 100% a large ape, no doubt about it. And the point that you made earlier um, is that with all of these fossils that you can find, they can all easily and clearly been put into the ape box or can be put into the human box. Now, the missing link is a little bit deceptive because that's not quite how evolution is, human evolution is supposed to work. But the point is still fairly strong. We are missing the thing from the middle. We're missing the things from the constant line into human beings. Yes, exactly. Um, so also as well, another point as well, which you may wish to expand upon a little bit, um, is about DNA, uh, about it, mm -hmm. it's actually designed by itself not to evolve. Could you mm -hmm. elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. This is one of the things we like to remind people, right? particularly when we're talking about what a design is. So we have a whole program of what a design is and how do you recognize the design and all this kind of stuff. And we make the comparisons between coding and DNA. Right? To recap, and we've got loads of programs on design, so go back and watch it. A design is, or you know something is a design, if the end product has properties that do not come from the materials that it's made of. Now, by that definition, DNA contains all the hallmarks of design. 
but it's actually designed it's got an extra design because you and i can design cars and computer codes right but what we can't design is something that is self-replicating and self-repairing or at least if we try it's not particularly very good right dna is actually designed to not evolve mutations are just supposed to be the driving force of evolution you have a mutation which is a mistake you either replace or add or change something around in the genome right and uh, you end up with a mistake and then natural selection eliminates the bad mistakes and only leaves the good mistakes hence driving evolution forward now there's lots and lots of problems with that and we haven't got time to go into everything but one of the biggest problems is that dna is designed to not evolve it has a self-replicating system that actually checks to make sure that there are no mistakes it when it duplicates itself it checks to make sure there are no mistakes uh, and so it has a mechanism by which it stops itself evolving now it's true a vast number of mutations get through because we live in a fallen world and there are problems with this uh, self-replicating design but the very fact that there's a design there to stop it from uh, mutating in the first place shows you that they couldn't possibly have evolved from this very design which is supposedly there to stop it evolving in the first place. It's just a circular issue, right? So um, the whole point of DNA is that it's designed to not evolve. Now, it's true that new problems and mutations do slip, uh, slip through, but that's uh, part of the result of living in a falling world. Yes, and also as well, you've, um, if you look at, uh, say, for instance, the, the dogs, um, you can breed all of the different kinds of dogs within... Mm you know, a, a very, very short amount of time. Um, but also as well is that they will never go outside of that because there are genetic limits. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So genetic limits for those people who don't understand is that um, there's hardwired <laughs> limits on either end of the genetic spectrum within a kind um, or species, whatever you want to call it, where a dog will not transform into something else. It is genetically impossible it will stay within the confines of these hardwired limits to stop it from changing into something else which i think is very fascinating because it, you, that argument in itself just goes to show how much faith there is in the evolutionary theory mm -hmm. but yeah anyway so i think this has been a fun presentation uh I'd like to end with a little bit of scripture. This is one of my favorite quotes. Uh, this is from 1 Peter 3, 15. Um, but in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And that's what I've tried to do today. I've tried to give a defense for my faith and to get, do it with gentleness and respect as anyone deserves. And I want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, looking forward to your questions. There we go. That's all done. Oh, Matt. Matt's still on mute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Donnie must be as well. <laughs> it's all right. We can jump into the Q&A. A lot of questions came in, actually. So, oh, good. Fa fantastic. Yes. Yeah. It'd be good that you're both here for it because we don't know where this will go. Um, you might like some of them. You might not like them. It's okay. That's fine. Yeah, so we throw I've, I've got a thick skin. It's fine. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
it looked like I stepped away right at the time that you were just ending. So I appreciate that. Oh, sorry about that. My, my timing, as always, is impeccable. You can just ask my parents. <laughs> it's fine. No worries. No worries. Uh, everything is good. And uh, that was a fantastic presentation, as always. Um, I always compliment. I always like to point out that I appreciate your slides. Um, you know, Sam, Joe, and uh, John Mackay, you guys all. Have awesome presentations, tons of kind words from the chat. Uh, today we're actually uh, double streaming. So we're streaming to both our channels at the same time. And uh, we've got over 60 people in the chat. So we've got a great Ooh, turnout. Wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we've got a, a, a lot of compliments and uh, great things to say. So God bless the both of you. Um, we've got questions that'll keep us busy for about the next five hours. So if you guys need a bathroom break or anything like that, I'm <laughs> just kidding. We're not going to go that long, but, um, so that being said, oh, actually there were some comments in the chat, Sam, saying that, uh, we found the perfect, uh, narrator voice. So they no longer need me. They want you Sam, to uh, record a, uh, an audio Bible. They said they could listen to you all uh all day so it's because it's i'm british isn't it that's just that's just what it is i found that going through well particularly the states is um you know we turned up at a school one day and all these all these young ladies there you know just start talking and they're like oh i said oh are you going to come and listen to me later on then oh yes 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 absolutely <laughs> you don't even know what i'm talking about doesn't matter we're gonna <laughs> <Yeah>. be <there. laughs> even if it's somebody you disagree even, with well, we, exactly well it's funny because we had a super chat from an atheist named bob i appreciate your support he pointed out he's an atheist doesn't believe in any gods but uh, nonetheless he's enjoying the presentation so oh, uh you know great you. job great yeah. stuff Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Sandy C says, exciting panel. Uh, love the John Mackay team. Well, to see more of them, please check the, descri the description box. Make sure you subscribe to their channels, check out the podcast yes. and utilize their website. Uh, I know I do. So that being said, let's kind of get right into it then, unless there's any uh, comments or points anybody wants to add before we get into the questions themselves. No, I mean, I mean I'm honored to have had such a lovely welcome. You know, it's, it's been fantastic. <laughs> so it's been, it's been really great doing this. It's, it's fantastic, great fun. You did a great job. Oh, I got to say, an hour and a half flies by as well. Great slides, great information. And you touched on so many different things, which is why I think we got a good diversity of... Um, questions now are, are we going to do the questions first sam or do the surprise first oh I don't, uh, is there a surprise though i don't know <laughs> oh. Oh, we, oh i'll go on then all right fine um so this is um th this is something special for standing for truth from myself and the creation research team uh, as you all know we have partnered together for the uh, the genesis film uh, I did tease a little bit earlier in my presentation that maybe something there is something. Um, and tease. I wanna... <laughs> you, very, you very heavily hinted at the best. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so this is something exclusive for you guys to say thank you for tuning in to me. Um, so yeah, whenever you're ready, guys, roll the new trailer. All right, Matt, do the honors, brother. All righty.
Very good. There we go, guys. That is the new Standing for Truth exclusive trailer. So that is exclusively for Standing for Truth. Um, I'm assuming, Donny, that'll be uploaded pretty much instantly as soon as the stream ends. (laughs) You got it. Oh, yeah. Um, So, yeah, that's just something I threw together. for, for you guys and uh, you've seen it you've seen it in previews before um and you guys have, have seen sort of a preview of the actual project itself um and we're just we're, I, i'm i'm stoked for this i really am it's going to be awesome no I'm, I'm so pumped the hype is real and uh what a an awesome trailer that just pumps me up more and more every time i watch it uh more hype from that trailer than the next big avengers movie <laughs> i guess you could say <laughs> or the next big jurassic park new movie <laughs> but seriously awesome trailer and i'm really really excited for uh people to see this um you know in early t- 2022 so something to look forward to well well we'll see about that we, <laughs> we we met we met i mean th- i mean i'll be honest things on the project are going so well we may be able to release it before christmas wow well that's a may awesome. i can't guarantee it but right. i'm i'm doing my dundest to make sure that this project will get done before Christmas. If not, it definitely will be early 2022. But obviously, we we at the Creation Research team will, will keep you abreast of any changes. Um, if there are any issues, whatever, uh, we'll keep you informed. But I mean, this is, this is my passion project. This is something I've always wanted to do. Um, and I'm so pleased that, you know, our ministries can combine um, together. Uh, so don't tease us like that. <laughs> <laughs> and good old, good old george promoting our content cheers on you mate yes. yeah um but yeah so um i mean if you guys have any questions about the project or even pe- people in the chat have got any questions about the project i'll see if i can answer them yeah yeah so as as comments come in especially uh, uh pertaining to the film uh guys i'll just put your comment up on screen mm-hmm. as far as the questions go these are questions that we say yeah sure from, uh you know an hour ago so we won't be able to put them up on screen but that being said matt why don't you uh pick out the first question that you think might uh, be suitable and uh we'll kind of go from there all right let's see a question directly for joe on this one how does the evolutionary community respond to the existence of polystrata trees and do you find their explanations convincing Okay, um, there's two parts to the answer. Uh, the first one is that they just completely ignore it, or at least that's what they used to. All right, we first started, uh, or the first secular uh, person to start documenting polystrate trees was Professor Garrick Ager, right, um, from uh, uh, Swansea University in Wales. And he was the first one to point out there's something seriously wrong with the way that these rock formations actually form, right, or they're supposed to be formed. But prior to even that being published, John Mackay was taking photographs of polystrate trees in Newcastle in Australia, right, to a beach where I've been to. Beautiful beach, wonderful, very difficult to get down there, but once you get down there, you're presented with some glorious fossils, including these polystrate trees. All right, they all have the same thing in common. They have the bed of coal at the bottom. Inside that bed of coal, there are no roots. Inside that bed of coal, there are no pine needles, and that's important because these are the pine trees, right? And there is no soil. 
uh, and then protruding out of these uh, these uh, coal deposits, you have this polystrate tree which sticks up through all the layers. They have no roots, they have no branches, and they have very little bark. And what little bark there is has been turned to coal. So these trees, by definition, have been ripped up, stripped, and dumped there, uh, standing upright as they've got waterlogged, right? They've been carried along by water. And John Mackay was taking photographs of these in the 70s and the 80s, right, and decided he was going to publish his report on them in the Sydney Basin Coal Conference, one of the biggest coal conferences, well, in the world, but certainly in Australia, right? And at the time, there was a very prolific atheist in charge of the Sydney Basin uh, Conference, and uh, a very, very anti-creationist, new John knew John Mackay's, uh, you know, creation guy reputation. And so when John tried to publish these photos and the report of these trees, he simply rejected it and said, there are no such thing as polystrate trees in Newcastle. Now, John had had all the papers and everything, right? And then he turned around and he said, well, if I can't do it in the Sydney Basin Coal Conference, I'll publish it in the International Coal Conference Proceedings, right? And he went to publish it and he found that it was rejected by exactly the same guy who'd rejected him on the Sydney Basin Coal Conference. Now, you could go and comment about some of the issues with peer review there, right? But here's something where they are physically saying, no, we refuse to accept even the existence of these, despite the fact I can take you there and see them, right? Now, as it happens, there's so much, uh, so many records and documents of these polystrate trees. They're all around the planet, right? I know about 30 different sites just in the UK where I can take you and show you, right? There's the famous trees uh, in uh, in um, Yellowstone National Park. Uh, a lot of those trees that Sam put up was in Tennessee, and I've collected all up and down the uh, coal deposits around Tennessee and seen these marvelous polystrate trees, right? What they tend to do now is say, well, okay, we're still going to accept the millions of years is, but we're going to say that these formations actually were deposited very quickly by water. Now, you saw some of the example of this um, in what Sam was saying about these things have to be buried quickly, but there's still a bit of a contradiction there uh, for two reasons. The first one is what they say is they say, well, you have a, a swamp-like environment where all these trees are going, and then it became inundated and buried in a sort of a flash local flood, which ended up burying these trees. Well, your first problem is the swamp scenario, because the majority of these polystrate trees, which were supposedly growing in a swamp before they got inundated and uh, it got compressed and turned into coal, the majority of these trees, they're so well preserved, we know exactly what kind of trees they are. We have their modern living counterparts, right? They're pretty much living fossils, and they don't live in swamps. They simply can't survive in swamps. So there's your first problem. From a paleobiological perspective, there's something else going on here. Secondly, we've already mentioned the fact that they've been stripped of their leaves and their branches. There's no soil that they're sitting in. So the majority of them have clearly been stripped and washed into position before settling upright due to waterlogging. Now, this is shows you clearly that they haven't been growing there. Right. Uh, so that's the first problem with their explanation. The second problem is this idea of a local flood, because these deposits are certainly not local. Now, the majority of polystrate trees, and I say the majority because there are examples outside of this, but the majority of these polystrate trees are found in the Carboniferous. Carboniferous means full of carbon. It's where all the coal is from. Right Here in the UK, we've called it Upper and Lower Carboniferous, and you Americans who couldn't possibly go with our British naming of things named them Pennsylvanian and Mississippian, right? But they're exactly the same deposit, just a different name. Now, 
Derek Ager, the guy who I pointed out earlier, was one of the first secular scientists to point out the problem, that the Carboniferous deposits cover 180 degrees of the Earth's surface. Now that is a very big flood. They're all identical, identical fossils, identical coal mats, identical fossil trees, all throughout the earth and if it wasn't for the temperature difference right i could jump in one of those doctor who tardis machines and go from tennessee in the usa to northumberland in the uk to newcastle in australia and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference from the rocks thank you very much my refreshment has arrived um now this is a very very large flood we're actually dealing with so they'll admit it's a flood but what you won't ever find somebody willing to do, and this is partially the fault of the academic system, is to get them to say, well, how big was this flood, if it really was a flood? And you'll find that the flood covered pretty much all the world, if uh, all the Earth, if not all the Earth, just from the Carboniferous rocks. Add on to it the Jurassic rocks that go around the world, the Cretaceous rocks that go all around the world, and so on and so forth, and you've got a pretty clear evidence of a global flood. That's a great answer, Joe. Um, I was just pointing out that again, that answer on polystrate trees could be a uh, separate clip um, for the channel and, and just kind of end old earth creation for good. So uh, one, uh, one project we've got in the works, and I say it's in the works, I don't really mean that. I mean, it's sort of dreamland over there is to actually produce a uh, our, our next major documentary um we want to be on polystrate trees i mean creation research has been investigating polystrate trees for the last sort of 35 to 40 years um and now i'm on board and taking that further right and we found brand new ones in the uk and so on and so forth so it'd be nice to film in australia in the new zealand in the uk in europe in america in canada right there are all these alaska all these polystrate trees all over the world and they are absolutely fabulous so um if you get behind us and support us and pay for our airfare we may be able to do that so uh, keep watching this space that would be awesome that would be awesome and and such an important answer that that you just gave joe uh such a an awesome line of evidence for the young earth creation global flood position and to kind of just point out that all of their explanations are what we like to call rescue devices really shows yeah. how how strong the young earth creation position is um okay so that being said matt uh, go ahead, brother. Uh, pick the next question. Sure. This one will be for both of you, so you can take your time or each answer it differently if you like. doesn't really matter, but uh, I don't see a name for it. But it's just that I'm curious to think, uh, was the Great Pyramid in Egypt built before or after the flood? Okay. Um, Do you want to give a shot at that, Sam, and then I'll... I'll, 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 gi I'll give it a go, but you're just going to outdo me, so it's, Probably, it's fine. But that's why I'm um, going to go first. <laughs> um, so... Initially, I, I would say it would be after, um, simply because of if you're looking at the Tower of Babel, uh, the distribution of the uh, different um, people across the earth when God scrambled the language to make people it, unable to stay in one place. Uh, you have different cultures forming across the world. Uh, they would spread and obviously flood legends would arrive and different creation myths and gods, goddesses, etc, etc, etc. And very quickly things would get very, very out of hand um, because people wouldn't be able to even comprehend um, how much... I mean, that's why I like to think about the Egyptians anyway, is that everything just got so complicated they eventually had to write it down. Because um, if you were looking at a, a book of ancient 
Egyptian mythology, uh, it's probably about that thick. Um, there's so many different things of, you know, you've got Set and Nun and, you know, Anubis, all kinds of things. Um, and they have got different, you know, laws about, well, traditions about burying the dead and things like that. Fantastic pioneers of technology. Don't get me wrong. I mean, these are some very advanced people. And you see that all across the world. You've got, you know, you've got the uh, pyramids in um, in America. The, well, sort of, they're sort of pyramids, not the same sort of type as you'd find in Egypt, but still very, very impressive buildings by some very early civilizations, which would indicate that intelligence would much higher back then. Um, and pyramids, I would say, would again would be a response to their beliefs, but also it's uh, it's proving that they are a more advanced race. Uh, of people compared to others um so yeah that's my take on it but i would say definitely after the flood you're muted joe you're muted yeah yeah i just realized that um sam's given an archaeologist perspective and we actually have a rather beautiful mummy mask here in our museum collection it's uh, really rather spectacular and it's these artifacts like this that actually do help us get that biblical perspective on things like um the pyramids and when they formed and uh, and everything else right um but to give you a geologist's perspective particularly if we're talking about noah's flood and when the great pyramid formed you have to ask what is the great pyramid made from the answer is very large limestone blocks right and okay what is limestone made of well it's done plenty of stuff with limestone on standing for truth before right but limestone is is, is made out of calcium carbonate uh, which is a mineral okay where does that calcium carbonate come from it comes from one or two places it's either a chemical reaction so we call it a chemical limestone in which case it's devoid of fossils and organic stuff um, or it's uh, directly derived from fossils right it's from little shells whether it's large shells or coccolithophores as we call them um which are little tiny planktonic shells, it is essentially a fossil rock. So it is a massive uh, fossil, in a sense, the Great Pyramid, right? Because all of the source of limestone, which they got from the local region, is all what we would call fossiliferous limestone. Uh, it's from the phosphates, and then the phosphate beds run all the way along the top of Africa and up into the uh, sort of Middle Eastern area. In fact, some of uh, Sam's fossils, the um, Spinosaurus dinosaur tooth, was from the Moroccan phosphate beds, right? Uh, so it's all this very, very large Cretaceous limestone deposits. Now, by that definition alone, it's a global deposit, therefore it's a worldwide flood, right? It's this very, very, very large limestone deposit, and it's full of all mixture and manner of different things, including plants. It's a big old mess, and so by that definition, the rocks which make up the uh, bricks, which make up the pyramids are flood deposited rocks so yes from geology as well as from the indications that you can get from history because pyramids are fascinating they go all over the world right we've got a whole program which we're putting together on uh, archaeology and history and sort of archaeology of the bible which would be good to do on standing for truth one day but um it's uh, it really does uh, make the the point yes the uh, great pyramid is certainly a po not only a post flood but a post babel event as well Awesome answers from the both of you, Sam and Joe. Uh, the chat's loving this. We are now over 70 people uh, who are really um, giving you guys some some good Great feedback stuff. and compliments. Fantastic. So I appreciate that. So, Matt. Probably the highest uh, amount of people I've ever had watch me at one time on the internet. So, <laughs> new record for me. 
<laughs> you're doing it. well. And and I let everybody know that when the show's over, you will be signing autographs, especially oh, okay. because you used to be a big time movie star, uh, given your uh, oh, I'll, I'll stop well. it. We'll stop it. <laughs> uh, Matt, you're doing a great job uh, picking out the good questions. So I'll let you pick out the next one as well. All right, we're going to jump back to our earlier question, and it is uh, skeptics on oldearth.org have asserted that if you believe in a young earth global flood model, you would expect all rocks to show evidence of a cataclysmic origin, but they don't. They say that most rocks give evidence of slow, gradual deposition. What is the best way to respond to this? Okay, I can jump in here if you want give my initial thoughts. Go for it. Okay, so uh, first of all, I, I point to one of my slides saying polystrate trees. Those take a very short amount. They need a short amount of time to form uh, just simply because of the origin of them. They just simply cannot form slowly because you would just get, a, again, a tiny sliver of wood um, fossilized in the actual strata themselves. And again, going back to the, the fossils themselves, I mean, you've got the jellyfish there that was formed incredibly quickly. You have a lot of pressure pressing down on that specimen in order to create that imprint. Um, and as well, I mean, I know that um, Diane Eager is uh, our, um, our uh, biomedical um, biologist thing. I never remember her whole title. Sorry, Diane. Um, but um, she has done uh, experiments with uh, fossil ink which is very interesting. I found fossilized ink from a squid, taken it into the lab, and we've actually managed to write with fossil ink. Interesting. So you look all across the fossil record, you're seeing all of these fossil specimens and these polystrate trees that again have had their roots ripped off. They've got no branches, basically no bark, and they are, they are lying vertically now creation research has actually done some investigation into this we've done a, a little experiment taken a whole bunch of sticks and dumped them in a big sort of pot of water and we've observed what's happened now something very interesting happens some fall horizontally so they just sink down as they become waterlogged but something very interesting happens what happens is that one end of some of them will become waterlogged now this in turn will turn the stick vertical and it'll slowly sink down like that and it'll land vertically or at a slight angle which shows how polystrate trees form is again it's a small scale but you can scale that up because it's again it's the same materials and it's the same water you know it's h2o <laughs> it's wet you know water is wet everyone newsflash um but you know you you've you've got to look at certain things in the fossil record and go, hang on, how did this form? And again, you've got dinosaurs that have drowned. You've got living fossils as well that are perfectly preserved. And you've got feathers being preserved as well. These are cataclysmic events. These are incredibly rapid burial events. And you've got rocks that bend as well. We didn't put this in the presentation, but you can, you can search online where you've got strata that actually curve round interesting because rocks shouldn't curve so that should have formed when the rock was soft or the sedimental deposit whatever you want to call it was soft that should have formed at that point and is then hardened into that position you take a rock you can't go oh no can't do that it'll just go because it's hard and brittle if you're looking at a strata 
you're looking at hard rock you've got you know limestone you've got sandstone you've got you know you even got uh you know even harder types of rock um i mean i'm i'm trying to sort of scourge my mind for all the different names and i'm i for some reason i'm thinking of <laughs> minecraft um but um uh you've got uh, yeah bedrock that's the one i'm looking bedrock there you go incredibly hard rock um but you've you've got to realize that you look across the entire world you're seeing these entirely huge deposits all deposited at one time these these don't form uh, multiple different millions of years uh, for instance you know you take a scientist you look take him to a polystrate tree and you take him to the same rock deposit 100 miles away they don't see a polystrate tree you ask them okay so which one's which you know is it millions of years or is it you know was it formed rapidly now the scientist is looking at the polystrate tree will go oh okay well i mean there's a fossilized tree in the middle of it so yeah so that must be must have formed rapidly in order for that to have been fossilized otherwise it would have rotted away and then the other scientists will go, oh, no, these are several billions of years, millions of years, because they don't see a probably straight tree, but they're the same exact formation. Your worldview dictates what you believe. And it's very interesting to see just how far of a reach that's gotten into our society when you're talking about a an issue of old earth and newer and young earth, mm. cataclysmic you know events you've got all of these things that are perfectly preserved in the fossil record and it, again you've got things that were preserved very quickly like for instance dinosaur bones that have got soft malleable tissue inside that doesn't form from a long time ago and again another issue with old earth creationism is the issue of sin where does sin come from where does it fit in god created everything very good now there would be no death and destruction but that's what we see all throughout the fossil record is death that's literally what it is it's death of something it's been preserved so where does sin fit into all of that i i've never really gotten a very valuable answer so i'll hand over to joe because i've i've had my two cents on that one okay um if you want to talk about how do you find the, i mean we did a whole program right called how do you recognize flood deposits um and you can use a whole number of things you can go onto our youtube channel and find it it was a, a fairly recent one i say recent it was this year uh, that i did for answers in genesis another big organization um and they had a big uh, a big conference right and we did stuff for them what we looked in is what evidence are you specifically looking for if you're looking for evidence that the a flood uh, laid down these deposits and then we looked to scale it up to a global flood scenario right and uh, i'll use the example of uh, the research paper the first ever research paper which i did right which was published through the university that i was doing at the time which looked at han stanton han stanton's a fairly small little deposit right it's chalk it's part of the uh, upper cretaceous uh, in norfolk in the uk it's sort of tucked out of the way but it's part of the global chalk deposits right and we looked in particular at one formation in it called the hunstanton formation which is a red chalk formation to look at the fossils in there to ask were these fossils buried in a shallow marine environment that slowly settled over hundreds if not thousands of years in fact it was over 1.2 million years uh, if you want to go by the secular dates or was it formed very quickly now, the way you can tell some indications of this include, do fossils have evidence of transportation? Now, transportation means that fossils were moved into place and didn't live, die, 
slowly settle and get buried there right now what is some evidence of transportation elongated fossils will be pointing the same way so belemnites which are squid long squid like creatures if you find them all pointing the same way the same as with trees right trees you have a few of them standing up but at the base you have a mass amount of trees which is a big log jam all pointing more or less in the same direction right so you find belemnites that all point the same way you find brachiopods and seashells that have been ripped up and turned upside down now they sit in one way in the rock so when they die they should literally just fall down at the sea floor uh, the way up that they were living more or less uh, these are not they are all without fail turned upside down and you also have wood mixed up in there as well. So the fact that you've got evidence of transportation, these fossils have been washed into place. This is not a slow settling environment. They've been washed into place. You have got mixed environments, right? Because you have wood and sea creatures buried next to each other. And you also have got fossils which have been tipped up and turned upside down indicates that it's been a fairly rapidly moving water that's actually washed these into place. So there are a number of evidences that you can look to see how has this actually been formed? And when you scale it up to a worldwide scale, that's when you get, hang on a minute, these are worldwide deposits, right? Now, if you want the perspective of somebody who was an atheist, um, you can actually stream on our streaming site, creationresearchlive.com, right? We have all of our content on there. That's not free. That's on YouTube. Uh, you pay a small thing to just uh, stream it. You don't even have to download anything, right? Uh, you just stream it straight off the internet. There's a fascinating thing on there called Flood or Folly by Dr. Ron Nella. Now, Ron was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in anything to do with God, right? But he came across evidence of a massive flood working as a geomorphologist in China. And he said, hang on a minute, the evidence from the fossils, the evidence from the deposits, the evidence that I can see working as a geomorphologist shows that this had to have been a really big flood. In fact, it had to be a flood on a worldwide scale. And so when he tried to actually publish this, he was completely knocked out of the park. You can't publish any reference to anything of a worldwide flood. But why not? The evidence is pointing that way. And he kept pushing it and he kept pushing it as an atheist, right? To the point that he was actually told, look, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to essentially let you go. We're going to have to lose your job over this, right? Because he kept pushing this thing, which did not fit in the secular paradigm. And uh, feeling rather dejected, he then left his university not knowing why he had really been let go and it wasn't until a friend opened up the bible held it under his nose and said there's your flood that he actually realized why uh, this was so controversial and he actually became a christian through that but it was interesting that he recognized the evidence of a worldwide flood coming from a purely secular atheistic background Right? And the evidence really is there, but it requires you to think outside the box, particularly the box that Charles Lyell put all of science in when he set out to destroy the Bible and to remove scripture from people's thinking. His entire aim, he openly admitted, was to remove science from the Bible, remove the Bible from science, rather, remove uh, free science from Moses was his exact quote. Right? He wanted to get rid of of the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the creation, Noah's flood, the Tower of Babel, and the law of God. It was a specifically anti-Christian agenda, and he went out there to remove that. He put all of scientific thinking into a single box, which was labeled, the present is the key to the past. And as a result, you have to actually step away from that philosophical assumption, that ideology, to actually look around the world that you've been given and say, hang on a minute, 
where does the evidence actually lead you? Um, so go and watch how to recognize a flood deposit. That goes into a lot more depth than we can do here. But the little example that I used at Hans Danton can be applied just about anywhere in the world. And you'll find that the evidence clearly shows it is a rapid global water-based deposit. Wow. Awesome answers uh, from the both of you. Incredibly thorough. I appreciate that. Just fascinating information. Um, okay. This next one comes in the form of a super chat from uh, Sentinel Apologetics. I appreciate the uh, super chat and the support, Rob. So his question is, if global, why pre-flood geography in Genesis 2 that Solomon referenced to build his temple he puts uh, 1 Kings 9 to 10. Why did David say that day one conditions, the water world, will never again, or will never occur again pre-flood? And then he, he puts uh, Psalms 104. Mm -hmm. okay. I can I can tell that Joe's getting really serious now because he sighed and opened his Bible. <laughs> <laughs> it's on now. It's, it's on. Uh, um I mean, I, I I can probably give a brief glimpse here. Um, I'd say for the second question here, um, so that day one conditions, water will never occur again pre-flood. Um, I'd simply state that that's just how the world was as it as it was when God created started to create, you know, do the do the days of, of Genesis. So it will never return to that form. I think is probably what he's trying to get at. I could be wrong. I could be just spouting a whole load of fooey, but I'll let I'll let Joe sort of. Um, he's he's the more sort of learned scholar in the room. <laughs> okay, if you go to our uh, website and click on the Q and A, right, um, and you uh, type in Psalm 104 or something like that, right, uh, you will find there is a very very long and very very detailed talk about psalm 104 because it's a fascinating chapter in the bible right your first problem is the reference to david there we don't actually know who the author of psalm 104 was i've heard all sorts of different things from shem himself all the way up to uh, moses and noah and david and all sorts of stuff but the reality is we don't actually know it doesn't really matter though who wrote it um it's here in scripture but what you will find is if you uh, go through uh, Psalm 104, you will find that the author is covering different points of time. Uh, he's looking at things from the past. He's looking at things from the present. And he's clearly indicating there are different times in which he's talking about. Right. He starts off in verses one down to uh, two about who God is and what God is like. He then deals from chapter three uh, down through chapter five to the beginning of chapter six to um about the, the the day one of creation right uh, the creation of all things when the earth was covered in water and then it caused god caused the land to come out of the water to the water to flood off the land and so on and so forth but he then switches to talking about the flood um noah's flood how do you know well you can actually look at the hebrew word with words within there which is only ever used in context to the flood it's used once other time in in in, in psalms which is the word marbul right it's the only other time it's used in the hebrew is back in uh, genesis uh, chapter six when it's talking about the flood that is over the earth right so you'll find there's a clear connection between what um uh the the author of psalm 104 is doing he's comparing day one to 
the flood. Uh, you end up having the waters which rise out of the waters. And then it says here, God covered them over again. The water stood above the mountains. And that's a direct reference to Genesis, where it says that the waters cover the mountains uh, above 20 cubits, right? With cubit being sort of the length of your elbow to the tips of your fingers. At your rebuke, they fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains, down into the valleys, to the place where you were founded of them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. Now, this is one of the biggest evidences you can tell that it's now talking about the flood because scripture cannot be inconsistent, right? Now, if you want to talk about what the earth means or what the flood means, we've used that word marbul, right? There's two other words to talk about in Genesis uh, where it talks about the flood, but also in the Psalms, it says that God sits a king over the marbul. God sits king over the flood. Now, the flood is clearly referring to the flood in Genesis because it uses that word marble. It's the only other place in the Bible where it talks about it. So if you're wanting to argue that it's a local flood, you're saying that God sits as king over only a very small area on the planet. Now, that's inconsistent. If you want to look at when it talks about the uh, flood covered all of the earth in uh, Genesis 6, 7, 8 and 9, right? Um, you will find that when it's talking about the flood covering all of the earth, that word earth can certainly be used in a local context. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But to throw some statistics out at you, uh, nearly 90% of the times that that Hebrew word for earth is used, it's always used in a global context. The 10% of the times, or just over 10% of the times that it's used in a local context, you can clearly tell the difference because of the context, the context surrounding your reading of the portion of scripture. Now, when you're looking in um, Genesis, how do we know one of the reasons that it's a global in uh, in extent? Well, aside from the fact that it makes sense in a global in a global sense, right? Because from what we're reading in Genesis, it talks about it rising over the mountains. Now, you know how water works, always goes to the lowest point, right? In order to rise 20 cubits above the mountains, uh, above all the mountains, even the highest mountains, it says, this has to be a global flood in extent. So it makes sense from context from scripture. It makes sense talking about who God actually is. He is the king over the flood, not just the king over a small little local place. And you can also get that evidence in Psalm 104 about how the author is comparing day one to the rebirth of the earth after the flood. Right? There's definitely a comparison being made there. And it goes on to talk about how great God is as a creator and so on and so forth. Right. So when you're dealing with uh, post plus well, pre and post flood geology and geography, you've got to remember one thing. The person who was compiling these books, particularly Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, was Moses, who was writing from a post flood perspective. All right now, that's key in actually bearing in mind when you're talking about these references in Two Kings and everything else. But you can clearly see from the context that we're talking about a global flood in context. Um, to argue otherwise is not only just to say, well, we are going to ignore all of the context and the 90% of other times when the word means global or means the whole earth, but you're also questioning who God actually is by saying, well, God is not the king over all of the earth. He's the king over a very small portion of the earth, right? So you've got to be very, very careful uh, when you're actually doing that. Again, thank you so much. That's a great answer. Uh, it's, it's a great question, and it's a question that's uh, put forth and a challenge put forth uh, a lot lately. Uh, you know, Matt can attest to that from the local flood proponent. So I appreciate such a 
a detailed answer. Has, uh, a, has John did John do a, a session on Psalm 104 a little while back with you guys? He did something in my head is telling me that, yeah, because that would be good to go. Um, yeah, well, so if we if we hadn't done it, it'd be good to do a special program on that and go into a lot more depth, but mm. um, yeah, go back and watch John, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that was I think a month ago. Uh, he was here. Great presentation. Yeah. And we had a good audience Q&A. So Great I stuff. recommend people check that out. Um, so a follow up super chat. I do want to make sure I get to the super chats. Um, actually, if I could request the audience, you know, at, at this point, uh, you know, any more uh, questions, we're just not going to be able to get to. So um, anyway, can I just make a quick suggestion then, Donnie, course, if there's yeah, lots yeah. and lots of other questions, um, if it wouldn't be too much work for you to kind of compile a list of them and send them across to us, one of the things that we like to do with Creation Conversations, our program on our YouTube, is to have questions and answers, right? We deal with a big topic, uh, usually once a week or a little bit shorter some weeks, but we like to have good questions and we go through our previous programs mm. and get all the questions out. So if you're able to send the questions through to us, one of the things that we can do is we can bring them up in our Creation Conversations program and uh, and get either myself, Sam, or John, who's always there, to actually uh, uh, you know, have a go at some of these some of these questions and programs. So just yeah. a suggestion. I love it. I love it. That's a great uh, great idea. Great suggestion uh, because we'll do this follow up from uh, Sentinel Apologetics. Sure. He's, he's done a few more. Follow us, but what I'll do, uh, Sentinel Apologetics, I appreciate all the support and the good questions. I'll save your next few follow-ups, um, and, and I'll, I'll hand them over through email to uh, the creation research team. So uh, we will do this one, though, at least from Rob. I appreciate it. He says, if the Bible did demonstrate a local flood, so I guess we could go over if it does or not, would all these anecdotal evidences for a global flood demonstrate a faulty scientific interpretation? All right. Well, I'll I'll just jump in very very briefly on this. Um, the question is 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 slightly redundant because we've already discussed the sort of the um, uh, evidence from scripture of a global flood, and I say we can go into a lot lot more detail than that. Um, if the Bible did demonstrate a local flood, then you would find that what we see in God's world is actually at conflict with what we read about um, in the scripture. Now you will find that the original geological um proponents who started they hadn't quite got to lyle's point of completely rejecting scripture but they were certainly trying to fit the idea of long ages into the flood and so they argued that the flood was either local in extent or they argued that the flood was extremely calm in extent and then they argued that there was a massive gap between genesis chapter one and genesis chapter two during which time god created all animals they fell because that was the time that lucifer fell and became satan as a result god sent a flood which destroyed all of the um all of the 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 world right buried all of the fossils then god recreated again and noah's flood was only very small and local in extent right so you'll find that you're instantly bringing extra biblical uh, issues into the bible in order to try and explain science from a perspective which goes against scripture right so that's what you'll end up doing if you take this question sort of um literally so to speak or if you do believe in a local flood but still want to believe in um you know uh, 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 or if the scripture did indicate a global uh, a local flood and you want to try and explain how the evidence shows a global flood these are some of the problems you'll run into but just going on the point because you did say in the question if the bible did What's the um, what are the implications or what are the consequences rather for modern science? Would it show a flaw in modern scientific thinking? Well, I think regardless of whether 
um, the flood indicated local or global, you've still got an indication of a problem with modern scientific thinking. And that goes back to that assumption which Charles Lyell makes. Right? And he made and he ended up influencing not only the church, but most of the public, including the scientific field, which is this philosophy of uniformitarianism. The present is the key to the past. Now, not only is that completely the opposite of what scripture says, it is an ideology, it is a philosophy. And if you use that as your basis for interpreting the world and geology around you, then you are always going to come up with a concept of millions of years, deep time and evolution every single time you apply it to the world. Because that's simply the logical conclusion out of it. However, recognize it's based on a philosophy and not actually based on any evidence at all. And we have our program on Lyle and everything else and you can find it. I've probably done it on Standing for Truth before and it's on our YouTube and so on and so forth, right? So go and investigate a little bit more with that. But uh, yes, I do believe there is, you know, aside of what the Bible indicates, I do believe there is a serious flaw in modern scientific thinking, and it's all centers around that philosophy which Lyell introduced, which was an anti-biblical anti philosophy, and it's something that's affected all of science, even now to our academic, uh, the way that we run academia today, has uh, major problems as a result of it. Yeah, what he said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Joe, as we always say here, you are a walking encyclopedia. So, so much uh, great information and, and important information. Um, actually, Matt, if you wanted to unmute yourself, did you want to get that, that super chat that just came in a couple minutes ago? Yes, I'm just pulling it up now. Okay. We know who wrote it from the um, LXX. Oh, so the Septuagint and the DSX. Mm -hmm. Uh, P R four P uh, Q P uh, um, and uh, eleven Q P S A. It is the Masoretic text that lacks David. Uh, it is the uh, Palmic against the Egyptian uh, at ten creation hymn. Okay, um, for those uh, in the in who are watching this who don't know what all these different letters mean, these is a it's a controversial issue um, around what is the most reliable portion of scripture. What are the most reliable uh, original uh, versions and original transcripts of scripture? You've got the uh, Septuagint to all these different things and the Masoretic text and all these kind of different words, right? Um, we do not have enough time. <laughs> to go into all of this right now we will be here for many many hours in fact it might be interesting to do a program just on 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 these kind of bible translations and the original um written and stuff and i think that'd be good one to get john involved in as well um because something that uh, somebody encouraged John many, many years back was to learn a little bit of Hebrew, and that's what he's kind of also passed on to me. And so um, we, we, we know a little thing or two about these different backgrounds, right? Um, it's 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 interesting. I'm assuming he is referencing uh, Psalm 104 with who is the author and David and all this. There's all sorts of controversy surrounding that. Um, personally, I think it is likely to be David, um, myself personally, for a number of, of, of these reasons. However, I would not go as far as to say we don't know. 
Uh, as, as far as to say we do know, sorry, um, I would still say there's enough controversy and issues because it's not just as straightforward as saying, well, here this says this, therefore that's it, right? Um, there's a reason why the Septuagint wasn't included. Now you can argue that it's to do with um, the sort of the history and the philosophy and the people who are actually writing or interpreting scripture, particularly the authorised version, right? Because you'll find if you read your authorised version or your King James Bible, there's a difference between the scripture which is written in the Old Testament and the scripture which is written in the New Testament because they're quoting from different sources, right? So there's an interesting, very, very interesting history to this. In fact, we um, got asked a similar question to do with the King James Version versus the Septuagint versus so on and so forth. And we were planning on doing a whole program for Creation Conversation. So maybe we'll do that one day. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't personally, I don't think you can go as far as to say we know it's David. Um, but at the same time, I suspect that to be the case uh, for, for, for a number of reasons. But we just simply don't get don't have the time to delve into all of the, the history and the background of it. Unless you know any more, Sam what you said no. I, 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 I mean to be honest it just sounded like you were just going through the alphabet at the start so yeah, I was, I was so, just, yeah. Um, do we have any other questions from any other super chats or any other people yeah well you know what we do have yes we've got over a dozen questions left Good. which is why Good. i'm just going to kind of wrap it because you know i want to be cognizant of, of your guys time and i really appreciate your time we are going on you know the two hour and 15 minute mark so that being said let's wrap it up with one or two more questions mm -hmm. and then the rest of them i'll send to you guys through email that's fine and uh you know a couple of them might spark some interest in terms of future shows so mm -hmm. um jim p this one came in a, a while ago so, uh, Jim, I do appreciate your question. He asks, why don't we find many fossils below the Cambrian? Um, okay. Um, simply because I would suggest that the Archean and Proterozoic pro um, rock layers were basically what, you know, Noah and the inhabitants of Earth would be walking on at that time. Um, and then obviously the floodwaters come sweeping all kinds of sediment and sand and mud silts bits of tree everything you know from the ocean floor up was being carried with the currents to form these different rock layers which are then burying themselves burying all these creatures in with themselves to form these different layers now if you take different types of sand and and what have you you form different layers even if you you know shake them up in a jar because different types of sand silt mud etc have different uh weights they all carry through water differently some will fall quicker than others which is why some for some again you find i would probably theorize that such a thing is like you that's why you find marine life and things like that at the bottom because these are already creatures who've been swept along with the flood flood waters all of these other creatures will have been knocked off their feet like dinosaurs and you know uh, all you know all kinds of creatures trees whatever have been knocked off their feet and carried with the flood water and obviously they've died now some most likely would have started being sort of mid floats or being carried with the current which is why you see sort of bigger animals maybe bearing being buried slightly higher in the rock layers i mean this is just one of my theories anyway um joe will probably berate me for saying that but um uh I would I most likely suggest that simply because the, the, the further down the rock layers you'll go, the, the further back in time towards the beginning of the flood you're going. So you're you're getting all these marine creatures being washed into place. 
being buried very rapidly and then you're getting all of these creatures land creatures again still you've got still got marine creatures being in there because again you've still got all these floodwaters constantly coming in from both the fountain of the great deep and also you've got water coming down from on top so you you've also got flooding on you know high hills or possibly mountains or whatever in this pre-flood world being you know you've heard of flash floods and things like that you know these are incredibly powerful torrents of water rip trees up and again you see the same exact thing even through mounts and helens and stuff like that you see all of these trees being like a polystrate tree no roots no twigs no branches hardly any bark completely stripped off and it's only in a short amount of time water is incredibly powerful and a lot of people underestimate it and unfortunately so because so many people die in flash floods a year um You've got water coming from both directions. So a lot of people just think it's coming from one direction. You've actually got water coming from above as well. So you've got creatures being washed that way. You know, this is a, a huge cataclysmic event because you've got the fountains of the Great Deep, which is the, the you know, the floods of the ocean coming in. You just bring all the marine creatures, the sea creatures. But then you've also got the, you know, the, the sky. It's raining so tremendously. You probably wouldn't be able to see your hand in front of your face. It was that heavy. You know, and you've got all of this water flowing down from the mountains, you know, carving these paths and things like that, these guides to get down into this chasm of, you know, you know, you know, with slur of like fresh water and salt water, you've got, you know, again, which is why you have, you know, land plants and marine creatures being buried together. You've got these two mixes of, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, different land and sea creatures being mixed together from different types of water. Uh, and again, we saw at the beginning of this, of the slideshow, uh, you know, that, um, uh, looking at that sort of, you know, that more local flood, but again, you've got sea and land creatures being buried together. Again, a similar thing, but you scale it up on a massive scale. You've got these, you know, fantastic flood deposits that stretch across entire continents, let alone, you know, states or countries, you know, continents of, you know, of de depositation, you know. Um, so that's, that would be my answer is just simply because, you know, you've got, that's when the destruction starts is all those, those rock layers beforehand is simply just what was being walked on. Again, there was no need for all these layers because there was no cataclysmic flood beforehand. All right. Prepare to be berated, Sam. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, you did it. No, it was, it was a good job. I, I would like to point out point out one thing, right? Because what you okay. did, you fell into the same trap that I fall into over and over again, and many other people fall into, right? You used two examples. The first one, you used the example of the glass of water where you put rocks and sand and silt and shake it up and let it settle, right? And then later on, you said, oh, but you know, the way that water moves and flows, you've got waters coming from this direction and that direction and down from the top and so on and so forth, right? Uh, what you're actually talking about are two completely different versions of the way that rocks form now your glass of water is great because you fill it up with water you shake it up so all the sediment is suspended and then you let it all settle now that would work brilliant if the earth was a glass of water but it's not right and it's this philosophy of the bottom layer got there first then the next layer then the next layer then the next layer which is was introduced uh, originally by nicholas stino who believed in creation and the flood in the bible but was hijacked by charles lyell to then argue well if the bottom got there first and the top got there last and the bottom's the oldest the top's the youngest therefore you've got a history of time 
right? When the reality is, if you actually look at the way that rocks form, first of all, you've got to get the sediment, so you need erosion. Secondly, you need to carry the sediment into place, so you need a movement. And thirdly, you need to actually deposit it. So you need to have something that is going to force those sediments to actually push down. And you find both the force, the movement, and the erosion is all explained by moving water. Currents and water which is moving in one direction at different speeds, carrying different types of uh, rock sediment, sediment and dumping it down, right? So that's your first point. And what you will find is this question of the Cambrian all the way up through to the Quaternary and so on and so forth. The standard geological model, which you used earlier in your talk, Sam, is based off of this assumption that the bottom got there first, the top got there last. And over the last sort of 250 years, it has been completely fabricated using this philosophy and therefore has been built using a secular deep time uh, point of view. Right, the bottom got there first and is therefore the oldest, the top got there last and is therefore the youngest. Whereas the reality is rocks don't form bottom to top, they actually form left to right. They form sideways as you have streams of water flowing. Now we've done loads of presentations, you can go on our YouTube channel and see our uh, strata experiments, some real fascinating stuff that is going on here, right? Um, but what you will find when you're talking about things like the Cambrian versus the posts, um, uh, the sort of the, uh, the the Cambrian up through Ordovician, Silurian, Devonian, and so on and so forth. You did hit the nail on the head there, Sam, right at the beginning. I do also believe that the rocks, the base rocks, um, underneath what is known as the Great Unconformity, so the Precambrian rocks, are the original pre-flood rocks, the rocks that had formed during day one, uh, day three, sorry, of creation, when God caused the waters to be gathered into one place, let the dry land appear as the water, as the land rises up out of the water, and as the water rushes off the land, incredible amounts of erosion, and you end up with layer upon layer upon layer, right, as the water is flowing sideways, rushing off of the land. Then you have creation, Garden of Eden, um, you know, Adam and Eve, all the way down to Noah, and then the earth gets ripped open, and you have a massive amount of more erosion, including mixing up all the fossils, dumping them down from sideways, different ecosystems being buried in different places, so on and so forth, and you end up with a formation which we now know as flood rocks. And then you have the Ice Age and so on and so forth after the flood, which produces the post-flood rocks. But hey, we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's my topic for next time on Standing for Truth, right? So uh, you've, you've got most of it right there, Sam, but uh, a warning to you nicely and to everybody else who uh, interprets rocks from this bottom to top sequence, it simply doesn't work in the real world. Um, so that's something you've really got to be careful of. Well, all I can say is oops. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great work. Great job, guys. You uh, you guys are awesome and a blessing. So what we're going to do is I'm going to pick out one last question of all these questions we have. I'm going to send you the rest of them through email. Uh, there are some interesting ones, uh, so definitely I'm sure you'll have fun looking through them. But this last one is a question that came in again near the beginning. So, uh, you know, I, out of respect, I do want to get to it. Mm -hmm. and, but now I think I might have. Oh, here it is. Okay. Uh, question from Second Best Bob. If the flood did actually happen, how did all the trees and plants survive? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, good question. My first, my first point is what happened to first best Bob? Why just second best? You know, why you, why why you just call yourself you know best Bob? Come on, you know we love you, man. Come on. Anyway, I, I kid, I kid. Um, so, 
you're looking at plants and seeds and things like that surviving the floods. Okay, so you can actually get a surprisingly amount of um, of seeds and uh, again a, a plant life and things like that that can actually survive. You know, sort of. I would assume some form of hibernation within water or you know in soil or whatever. I'm probably wrong again. Probably going to get berated again, um, but that's fine. Um, uh, but also remember as well that um, Noah took, you know, you look back at the at the account, it says take food and seeds and all kinds of things onto the ark with you. I mean, this is, you know, this is, this is not just a, you know, this is not a, you know, zoological perspective. This is literally saving life. This is a ark. This is, you know, what, what it is, you know, you've got the, the whole issue here is that people assume that, oh, you know, especially secularists, you know, you know, oh, you know, oh, you've got, you know, eight zookeepers and, you know, da, 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 da. no, they weren't zookeepers. They were just humans who were just keeping everything alive as long as possible to ensure that they could repopulate the earth. You know, we're not talking, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they were incredibly skilled at what they did. I mean, obviously, because Noah built the massive ark. Um, but I mean, we're, talk we're not talking about people, who, you know, like, Joe, who spent you know many years of their lives actually you know learning and actually looking after animals for a living, you know most likely you know Noah could have possibly been a some form of carpenter, a very skilled carpenter, or you know been in that trade or whatever. Um, we simply just don't know. Um, so all of that is speculation. But when you're looking at you know that's what the ark was there for is to preserve and sustain life after the flood um and seeds sometimes will float onto the surface you know you get some which have a low um uh low uh well low low density um and the actual water tension will actually cause it to float um obviously as plants break down and the um you know in the flood waters um is you know you get some which would float on top you know they wouldn't get fossilized they just rot away on top i mean it's same again you know you probably have that's probably how birds would survive would be feasting they'd be constantly flying and landing on you know bodies and you know bits of wood and stuff like that as long as they could before they couldn't fly anymore and eventually died you know falling into the ocean getting washed you know washed away um but these pl plants would be floating on top and you know they break down the seeds would come out and float on the top and then obviously as the flood waters come down it just rests upon the, upon the top soil or top dirt whatever you know and would nestle there um i mean you can look at some forms of modern plants and they do survive underwater for a long period of time i mean you know grass is pretty tough stuff you can't really get rid of grass uh, because the seeds are so minuscule and minute um uh but the thing is with um with most seeds they are quite large so again it's it's this is where the art sort of comes in to try and save the planet is to you know repopulate the earth with tree seeds and you know all kinds of you know food and grasses and everything reeds everything 
I'll be if my I can answer. just uh, just jump in there quickly, Sam. Um, okay, what does Noah get told to take aboard the Ark? Now, it's a perfectly reasonable explanation that he took aboard seeds and stuff, particularly for farming afterwards. I mean, we know that Noah became a farmer afterwards because he grew grapes. So it's down to reason that he brought his prized grape seeds along with him, right, in order to grow them. Uh, and you find agriculture is there pretty much straight away after the flood. So it would stand to reason that in order to help humans survive, they took agriculture with them, right, in order to, to, to help. Of course, that doesn't really explain how, I mean, Noah himself didn't wander over to, uh, you know, Australia or America or whatever to plant your pine trees and seeds and all this kind of stuff. Okay, what did Noah get told to take aboard the ark? Or rather, what did God send Noah to take him uh, to take aboard the ark? Two of every land-dwelling, air-breathing animal, seven of every land-dwelling, air-breathing, clean animal, and two of every bird or flying creature right um and uh, and of creeping things and stuff as well right okay so no sea creatures that's the first one and also specifically not any plants why well both sea creatures and plants are both very very good at surviving in water right in fact many seeds almost seem designed to actually cope with vast quantities of water in order to be able to survive we have a, a great um sea bean it's absolutely massive in uh, in our museum collection but the individual pods break off and they slowly rot over a number of months as they float along and uh, the sea bean ends up being washed out and washes ashore where it can grow right? now these can survive for so long and uh for such sort of massive um uh, you know, currents and stuff, these grow in the Amazon, right? And they fall off into the Amazon River and they can actually float out to sea, hit the Gulf Stream and end up on our beaches in Scotland, right? And some of them even come all the way over the top of Scotland and end up on the beaches of my native Norfolk. Right? So these can actually travel a very, very long way and cope absolutely fine. In fact, they actually need to be in the water for a number of months to actually be able to grow. And if you just buy the seed straight out and you want to have help them to germinate, you need to soak them uh, for quite a long period of time before that. Coconut is another example. Coco de mer, uh, the largest nut in the world, is another example. These are all designed to flight. But what you'll also find is seeds can actually survive an incredibly long time. You can go and get grain right out of the uh, ancient Egyptian um, uh, pyramids and tombs and stuff and can sow it and it grows. They do remarkably well at growing and they do remarkably well at coping with wet as well, particularly if the conditions are with no oxygen. So you'll find a lot of these seeds can easily survive a major flood, particularly if you have large groups of floating mats. I mean, if you have a, a massive amount of vegetation pre-flood, a lot of this is obviously going to turn into coal and oil, but you still have large amounts of these floating log mats, which can carry seeds and all sorts of stuff, which end up uh, being able to spread out and repopulate themselves after the flood. So I suspect it's got more to do with seeds being able to cope with large amounts of water than it has no are taking it specifically to help repopulate the earth with plants but it certainly stands to reason as uh, as sam said that Noah would have taken these plants and seeds and so on and so forth aboard with him particularly the ones that can actually help with agriculture um things like the grains things like the vines uh things that can actually be mass produced because you'll find a lot of plants don't do very well with being mass produced but there's a small number which do exceedingly well with mass production these include the cereals and the grasses right and so on and so forth uh, and they just 
to happen to be the ones that are most beneficial for us as being able to raise and eat and consume as a human race. So a little bit of interesting agricultural history uh, there as well. Again, great answers. Uh, sorry, I was on mute. Um, lots of great comments coming in. We're still at 70 people, but uh, we did hit the two and a half hour mark. Joe, Sam, great endurance. Uh, you know, somebody's uh, yeah, mid middle of the night here at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> we're always, gonna wrap it's always, it's always good to be on here. Yes, I appreciate that. We're gonna wrap it up here. We've got uh, your links being posted in the chat, they're also in the description box. I have um made a document with all the questions. So I will send them to you again. Thank you, thank you so much for the presentation, uh, Sam and Joe, fantastic answers to some really good uh, questions. Uh, any, any final words, final thoughts, uh, Sam and Joe, before we uh, shut it down? I'll let Joe go first. All right. Well, uh, keep asking questions. That's the first one. Um, I think Sam did a really great job tonight for his sort of first creation research outing. Oh, yeah. So uh, well done there for Sam. That was really, really, really good. Um, and uh, of course, just a reminder of some of the things that we, we've got coming up. We obviously have creation conversations on our program every Friday. Keep an eye out for that trailer about the climate change political side of things, because that'll be uh, interesting coming up fairly soon as well. And um, yeah, we look forward to uh, joining you next time where i'll be going through the flood post-flood boundary which is a very controversial topic amongst creationists so i'll be giving you my perspective which is um uh maybe not the conventional one but uh we'll we'll see how we go with we'll see how we go with that well thank you so much joe i'm really i know there's a lot of in-house discussion on that uh, uh -huh. specific uh -huh. topic so i know there's a lot of us including matt who are just really excited for that so i appreciate all the time you guys give us great uh, stuff Sam. Sam, yeah um i've i've loved being on here it's been fantastic um we've been planning this for ages and it finally came around so it's been really exciting um i will say that um the the genesis film is going well uh, I'm glad you guys love the trailer. Uh, that's been sort of like a secret I've had to keep for a little while now. Um, and um, I know that, you know, these guys, Matt and Donnie, are, are super excited. And, you know, Joe's excited as well. You know, we're all, we're all chomping at the bit to get this to, into your hands as quick as possible. And we will get it to your hands as quick as possible. You know, I do want you guys to see it. Um, but we won't release it until it's ready. That's the only caveat I will say is that if we don't feel it's right, we won't release it. Um, not full stop. We're not bidding the project altogether. I don't want to worry anyone. Um, but um, but yeah, we're we we I'm working hard on it. Um, I'm doing a little bit of uh, work on the music and the um, the titles at the minute. Um, the base content I think is pretty much there. Um, might be a few tweaks here and there, but I mean you know there always is tweaks. I mean nothing, nothing's ever perfect. Um, but I will say that obviously this is not intended to be a literal inter, you know, like, you know, as in like, you know, letter by letter interpretation of what actually happened at Genesis. This is, we are taking artistic liberties here. Um, so this is not a, something to, uh, to get all sort of, you know, Oh, well you, you did this, you did that. Well, you know, I mean, we, we weren't there, so we don't know. So I, I'm, I'm having to guess with a few things. Um, but we are going on what we can best do. And, and also it's about relating it to the modern audience as well. You know, using imagery from today to relate to what we read and how God may indeed have created the world. We don't know, but 
we we're taking a wild stab at it and it's coming out really well so i'm 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 super stoked guys i really can't wait to do it and we're definitely we're definitely going to do a premiere we have to do a premiere now absolutely yeah <laughs> a proper premiere with music and lights and well maybe not that but um you know oh, so red the red carpet. carpet the red carpet yeah, well, I don't know. I'll tell you what, we'll just do a live stream. I'll just hold up a red carpet, you know, there you go, <laughs> red carpet there. Um, but yeah, so we'll, we'll definitely do that. And we'll, obviously, we'll invite all you guys. And I think we may even do like a multi stream to everywhere of the premiere. And then we'll, yeah, we'll go from there. Hopefully. I mean, we think we'll, it's still in the planning stages. So. Well, I appreciate those final words. Uh, great final words, Joe and Sam. I know it's not always easy keeping these, uh, you know, big projects a secret. <laughs> so you did a great job. <laughs> I know I'm never good with that. And uh, right before we shut it down, Matt, great job today uh, with the questions and, uh, you know, being co-host. Any final words, final thoughts from you, brother? Yeah, good uh, job, Matt. Yeah. Thanks. And um, yeah, I'll give up my time and I'm going to play the trailer one more time for the people that just jumped in and haven't got to see it yet. <laughs> oh, awesome. Let's do it. So good. That's awesome. That's so good. Love it. I got to say, I love the Spinosaurus, the Plesiosaurs, you know, the dinosaur. You know, this is an accurate depiction. So yes. awesome trailer. We will have it uploaded in the next hour or two on the channel as well. Both channels. We did a uh, double stream tonight and it, and it went well. So I think we're going to start doing this more often. So that being said, thanks again, Joe, Sam, Matt. Uh, thanks to everybody in the audience. God bless you all. And uh, Standing for Truth is out.